4: Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, July 1, 2016. So I have been told this is our 11th study session on Harriet A. Washington's outstanding medical apartheid. Uh, We are on Chapter 13, very beginning of Chapter 13, Infection and inequity illness as crime Uh, we are almost done I think we only have uh, two sessions Uh, after this and we will be done Uh, we will go ahead and get started immediately Uh, again this is one of the best books that I've read I hope people are taking notes if you actually have the physical copy of the book uh, again look through the references the footnotes Uh, it's just a lot of additional reading material if you want to get more research uh, and learn more see where she got some of her information from uh, as we have been moving if you have not had a physical copy of the book this is one that you should get in your library Insist every single black person on the planet should read this book, especially if you are going into healthcare. Absolute must have in your library. It has been a pleasure to read with you all. Without further ado, Harriet A. Washington, Medical Apartheid, study session number 11, audio segment number one,
0: Context of White Supremacy. Chapter 13 Infection and Inequity Illness as Crime Unhealthy Places and Decadent Times Infect Us by Their Contagion Joseph Joubert In April 1992, 34-year-old Milton Ellison made the front page of the New York Times after being unshackled. They had me chained to the bed for three weeks, he told the Times. Ellison was not held for assault, rape, or murder. His crime was more subtle. He had tuberculosis and had not complied with his doctor's orders to take medication. He was jailed not in a cell at New York City's Rikers Island prison, but in an Orange County, New York hospital. Health officials had summoned sheriff's deputies, who transported him to the hospital, where his wrist and ankles were shackled to a hospital bed, and he was given his medication under the observation of not doctors, but deputies. After his weeks-long ordeal, Ellison, who was a schizophrenic, asked, Why was that necessary? If I were ill, I couldn't go anywhere. Ellison was not the only patient to be incarcerated. Other major cities, including Boston, San Francisco, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C., have taken the same steps. Public health expert Georges Benjamin, M.D., who now serves as the editor of the American Journal of Public Health, said, There are rules on the books that allow caregivers to get court orders to force individuals to be hospitalized. You hospitalize them until they are no longer infectious. However, these rules are public health laws that require a hearing before involuntary commitment, a hearing that Allison was not given. A disquieting racial disparity characterizes the patient profiles of those forced to undergo such containment therapy. Between 1988 and April 1991, the New York City Health Commissioner ordered 33 tuberculosis patients to be held in hospitals against their will until they were no longer infectious. 79% were black. As we have heard, blacks have long been perceived as particularly vulnerable to some infectious diseases. So perhaps it should not surprise us that when emerging diseases such as AIDS and hepatitis C appeared, these were racialized as well. What's more, blacks are also frequently presented as vectors of disease, posing a threat of infection to whites. In the 1930s and 1940s, African-American public health advocates, following in the footsteps of Booker T. Washington, promoted such initiatives as Negro Health Week to provide tuberculosis prevention and care to blacks, who rarely gained entree to quality medical care. But white support of such initiatives was predicated on concerns that the black domestics who cared for their children, cleaned their homes, drove their cars, and prepared their meals might import tuberculosis into white households. Tuberculosis, often referred to as TB, is an ancient infectious disease that usually attacks the lungs and is often fatal if not treated properly. It was once feared mightily, just as AIDS displaced cancer in our bestiary of medical horrors, cancer once displaced tuberculosis, after antibiotics seemed to vanquish TB. In the developing world, many deaths from AIDS are still due to the tuberculosis that accompanies it. In the United States, half of incarcerated TB sufferers are not only black, but also homeless, and many have a history of mental illness, alcohol and drug abuse, or all of the above risk factors. Until recently, we have consigned infectious diseases to the past. This is because 50 years ago, the discovery of antibiotics and the development of vaccines armed scientists with magic bullets against disease-causing microbes such as bacteria and viruses. The Sabin vaccine had tamed polio, and antibiotics such as rifampin promised to eradicate tuberculosis. Bubonic plague and bacterial meningitis were being controlled for the first time. The diseases tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis once-mass murderers, were already memories. Unfortunately, we then seemed to lose our respect for infective organisms because we had the antibiotic cure handy in a pill or a syringe. The apparent conquest of infectious diseases fostered an ominous hubris as health systems abandoned public health measures designed to prevent infection. Antibiotics replaced hygiene and basic public health measures, hospital wards no longer boasted pathogen-killing ultraviolet lights and special ventilation that constrained the movement of airborne, pathogen-laden air. Secure medical wards to quarantine the ill disappeared, as did regular testing in schools and workplaces. Education and case-finding, the regular monitoring of the public to find people with tuberculosis, ended. The result? Over a decade ago, we realized that that profligate use of antibiotics and short-sighted public health measures had combined to turn the common E. coli bacteria in Hamburger into a killer, to transform the common Staphylococcus germ into flesh-eating variants, and to summon even deadlier manifestations of diseases like tuberculosis from their ashes. Tuberculosis underwent a horrible renaissance because when case-finding was abandoned, people with TB went undiagnosed and untreated, at least not attended to in time to save their lives or those they infected. Also, people who should have been taking medication for TB were often noncompliant. That is, they did not take medications at the recommended doses for the necessary length of time. As a result, not all of their TB bacilli were killed, and the surviving TB bacilli were hardier, and resistant to some of the drugs that had once vanquished them. TB is no longer easily cured with the drugs that worked so well 50 years ago, said Roscoe C. Young, M.D., a pulmonary specialist at Meharry Medical School. Instead of one drug taken for a short time, doctors now must use four drugs in a complicated schedule that can spread over years to treat this deadlier, multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, MDRTB. We now have highly virulent strains of tuberculosis with the airborne propensity for spreading. AIDS has also abetted TB cases among African Americans. Two thirds of people with AIDS die of lung disease. And if they are African American, that lung disease is more likely to be tuberculosis than Pneumocystis carinii pneumonia. Doctors invoke disease resistance to explain why they must reluctantly force treatment upon the drug-resistant, such as Ellison. They explain that compared to the earlier, slow-progressing version that took years to contract and develop, today's TB bugs propagate quickly, promiscuously, and with greater lethality. TB patients who repeatedly abandon long, carefully orchestrated regimens of up to four drugs can die but not before infecting others. Despite this rationale, 27% of the infectious persons locked away by New York City do not suffer from drug-resistant strains. George's Benjamin, who is African American, emphasizes that locking up patients should be the last resort, and his reluctance to do so is obvious. There are policies and procedures in place that most public health officials would try first, he explains. For example, they try to do Directly Observed Therapy, DOT, in which a nurse or other public health professional watches a patient to ensure that medications are correctly taken. But sadly, funds to support such intermediate measures have dwindled, leaving doctors with fewer options before detaining patients. Funding may also factor in some decisions to monitor patients closely or to confine them to hospital units because health institutions earn more for patients undergoing DOT, or forced hospital treatment, than for voluntary patients. For example, in 1992, Medicaid paid only $38.82 per patient per week for routine doctor visits by the patient, but it paid $95.90 when a worker visited the patient's home for DOT. Hospitals could receive grants of as much as $50,000 to build DOT programs. However, the ethical problems of detaining TB patients, who are mostly black men, extend beyond any whiff of financial inducement. 34% of the TB cases in the United States affect blacks, who constitute only 12.3% of the population, a 300% greater TB risk for blacks than for whites. TB has always been more prevalent in blacks, but not due to genetic susceptibility, explained Margaret Cadre, M.D., chief of infectious disease at Morehouse School of Medicine, but because of socioeconomic conditions. We have been among the poorest people and often live in urban centers amidst crowded conditions and a lack of access to health care. One wonders whether if tuberculosis singled out upper-class whites, less punitive solutions would abound. The history of a persistent TB epidemic at New York's Rikers Island Prison may be instructive on that score. In 1982, the Legal Aid Society sued the city's corrections department, demanding that it address inmate illness and deaths resulting from its long-time tuberculosis epidemic. That year, there were 2,268 new TB cases. By late 1991, there were 4,426 cases. In January 1992, a new drug-resistant TB killed 27 inmates. Then, an infected white corrections officer died. The city responded with alacrity, signing a renovation contract within the month on February 8th, with Mark Corrections, Inc. of Maywood, New Jersey, and building a new high-tech tuberculosis isolation wing, which was speedily erected at a cost of $4 million. There is no easy answer to the multi-drug-resistant TB threat. But in light of its racially disparate containment approaches, we should give the shackles a rest and fund more medical approaches. Confining medically underserved TB sufferers fails to address impaired health, poor access to care, crowding and homelessness, the root causes of the tuberculosis upswing. In fact, the fear of being locked up may dissuade people with TB from seeking treatment. There are also slippery slope issues. We jail people with TB today. Might we jail people with SARS tomorrow? Alcoholics? Smokers? Less punitive practices and more medical solutions might include wide-scale vaccination, a step that the government has so far resisted funding, probably because the bacillus calmet guerin vaccine, the world's most widely used, is imperfect, protecting only four out of five people vaccinated, and triggering a painful reaction called regional lymphadenopathy in a few. Policymakers might also consider a better coordination of public health systems to give immigrants, the homeless, prisoners, and migrant workers easier access to treatment. Currently, health policy simply abandons or incarcerates the infected as noncompliant when they fail to scale the formidable barriers of cost and access between themselves and good medical care. Drug-resistant tuberculosis proved to be merely a sentinel disease. Within the last few decades, new infectious diseases, or reinvigorated old ones, have materialized as global threats, from the AIDS pandemic to hepatitis C to SARS. An infectious disease represents far more than a physical ailment that is caused by pathogens and the organisms on which they travel, disease vectors in medical argot. Infectious diseases also pose a threat to entire populations. Their spread, prevalence, and treatment is closely linked to social factors, including crowding, poverty, inequitable access to medications, incarceration rates, women's rights, and a host of other political and social stressors. These threats have played out very differently for African Americans than for whites. And a few examples illustrate how biased research and inequitable policies have shaped the uncomfortably close relationship between African Americans and infectious disease. AIDS In 2002, HIV infection outstripped the Black Death as the single, deadliest pandemic in recorded history. According to the Joint United Nations Program on HIV-AIDS, 40.3 million people across the globe are infected with HIV, and 3 million died of AIDS in 2005. Sub-Saharan Africa is the most heavily affected region because it is home to 64% of new HIV infections. Closer to home, HIV now constitutes the third leading cause of death for young adult African Americans, those between 25 and 44 years of age. In 2004, the CDC determined that most of the AIDS cases in the United States were diagnosed in African Americans. As this book went to press, AIDS was being diagnosed in black Americans at 10 times the rate as in whites. It is 25 times more common in black women than in white women, and 10 times more common in black men than in white men. Nearly all American children infected by HIV approximately 83% are black or Hispanic, but one reads more about the tragic plight of sub-Saharan African children than about the children in our own backyards. This observation plays into a perception by many African Americans that because AIDS strikes the marginalized, concern and sympathy have been largely replaced by stigmatization, moral judgment, and deadly indifference. In the 1980s, however, AIDS was first identified in what was then an equally marginalized group, gay white men. They were widely maligned as people with reprehensible lifestyles whose behaviors put them at risk for what was dubbed the gay plague. When it became clear that intimate relations between gay men and others were facilitating the spread of HIV into populations previously thought immune, such as straight whites, This misplaced moral disdain escalated into accusations that gays were sources of contagion and that their behavior needed to be constrained by public health laws. The debate was encapsulated in San Francisco journalist Randy Schultz's controversial social history of the pandemic's early days, and the ban played on. Schultz detailed the role of Gaetan Dugas, known as Patient Zero, who knowingly infected many other men. But gay men's behavior was not heavily circumscribed, because fierce debates over the human rights and dignity of gays ensued, and thus, few of the proposed constraints were enacted into law. Bathhouses that facilitated anonymous sex were closed, but the public health department made no attempt to trace men's sexual contacts, to quarantine those infected men who refused to protect their partners, or to force men to divulge their HIV status. Certainly no one was jailed. In fact, Cuba was almost universally condemned for its claim that it had contained the HIV epidemic by quarantining the infected. Thus, the standard public health tactics of infection control, including contact tracing and selective quarantine, were rejected in the early days of the epidemic when they might have had the most usefulness in stemming the spread of the pandemic. However, the focus of the pandemic shifted as black people were infected in large numbers and they became identified with the vectors of the disease. HIV was very early posited to have an origin among people of color, though it was first found among whites. By the late 1980s, medical journals and news media referred to several classes of the HIV-infected. There was early and frequent reference to innocent victims of AIDS, which intimated the existence of other, presumably guilty, victims. The innocent included infected children such as Ryan White and such sympathetic exemplars as Kimberly Bergalis. What they had in common, besides media sympathy, was white skin and virginity. Ryan White was a ten-year-old boy who had been cast out of his school because of his HIV status, and whose family had been persecuted by fearful neighbors. This sad tale of cruel discrimination against a sick child was narrated by newspapers and television everywhere, and was punctuated by frequent reminders of his innocent status. He had not contracted HIV from a sexual encounter or injected drug use. Neither had Kimberly Bergolis, another innocent victim, who had been infected by a dentist implicated in the possibly intentional infections of several other patients, patients we never saw, before his demise from HIV disease. Bergolis was constantly profiled, and her courage, religious faith, and ravaged youth made it impossible not to sympathize with her plight. Her virginity which certified her status as an innocent victim, was mentioned in a high percentage of the news stories describing her plight. But the demographics of HIV infections began to change as HIV preyed upon the marginalized, the Africans, and, in this country, the poor and black. Early newspaper stories on the shifting demographics were given little prominence, Neither were reports that the rural South was emerging as an epicenter of infection. But by 1997, a sea of change had taken place, and news reports informed us that HIV affected a much larger percentage of blacks than whites, that it had become the chief killer of young African Americans, and that most children with HIV were black and or Hispanic. First in the minds of many Americans and finally in grim reality, as certified by CDC statistics, AIDS had become a black disease. Not all the news about AIDS and blacks is bad. Although, too often, silence greets hopeful news that contradicts AIDS's status as a black disease. For example, although journalists publicize and celebrate hopeful news about white men who have resisted illness despite long-term HIV infections, A resounding media silence followed similar tidings about groups of African women, who by 1997 seemed to have achieved what the best laboratories in the world could not, the power to ward off HIV infection. Over six years, 10% of a group of Nairobi prostitutes, under study, remained uninfected, although each had sex with hundreds of men the resistant women didn't use condoms or receive medical care any more frequently than their infected counterparts. Scientists aren't sure how their bodies outwitted the virus, but human leukocyte antigens, HLAs, smart proteins that recognize foreign invaders, are probably the chief factor. Many vaccines have been designed by studying people who display puzzling immunities. For example, Edward Jenner first perfected the smallpox vaccine in 1796 after studying milkmaids who became immune after contracting the more benign cowpox. The Nairobi women have the potential to be today's milkmaids, the source of a life-saving vaccine out of Africa. So one might expect these women to be the focus of media and popular speculation. But popular references to Africans' natural immunities have disappeared although medical research continues to explore their potential as promising domestic pockets of possible disease resistance. American attitudes toward people with AIDS have also mutated from protective to punitive. More restrictive laws have evolved into the litmus test for public health advocates and legislators who wish to be perceived as addressing the pandemic. Testing Children the term innocent victims has largely disappeared from newspaper pages. Not even the infants who were tested for HIV without their mother's knowledge, or the African infants whose mothers lost their prophylactic azidothymidine or AZT, when U.S. drug trials ended, are now specified as innocent victims. Children with HIV are increasingly finding that their status is that of involuntary research subjects non victims. In December 2004, for example, the journal Nature Medicine reported that since the early 1990s, HIV-positive orphans have been the subjects of dozens of national clinical trials run by researchers at Columbia University Medical Center and other New York City area hospitals. Mammoth pharmaceutical corporations such as GlaxoSmithKline, the manufacturer of Zidovudine, have sponsored the testing of antiretroviral and other pharmaceuticals on scores of HIV-infected orphans housed in New York City's Incarnation Children's Center, ICC. This institution for the HIV-infected is run by Catholic Charities in Washington Heights, a neighborhood where Columbia University conducted fenfluramine violence studies, as detailed in Chapter 11. The ICC orphans were born to HIV-positive mothers, and their parents either are dead or have been deemed unfit to care for them by the courts. Within ICC's walls, Columbia University Medical Center physicians manage AIDS drug trials approved by the Pediatric AIDS Clinical Trials Group, PACTG, a network that imposes standards for and evaluates clinical trials for the care of HIV-infected children. These trials were supported by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, with the approval of New York's Administration for Children's Services, ACS. Catherine Painter, M.D., the medical director of Incarnation Children's Center, acknowledges that ICC is affiliated with Columbia Presbyterian and receives HIV-infected children from six New York hospitals, Columbia Presbyterian, Harlem Hospital, New York Hospital, St. Luke's Roosevelt, King's County Hospital in Brooklyn, and SUNY, as well as from outpatient HIV clinics in the city, in the five boroughs, and in Westchester. She also verified that, as was mentioned in Chapter 11, the children are subjects in the testing of experimental drugs. Many of the clinics that refer to us are participating in clinical drug trials, she told the New York Press in 2004. Children participating in a drug trial undergo monitoring, testing, and supply of an experimental drug through their outpatient clinic, and we maintain that treatment here. Thirty six experiments were conducted at the ICC between 1997 and 2003, and GlaxoSmithKline sponsored four of these. The Center's experimental activities are not unique or even unusual for New York, according to the BBC, whose November 2004 television documentary, Guinea Pig Kids, noted that over 23,000 of the city's children are either in foster care or independent homes run mostly by religious organizations on behalf of the local authorities, and almost 99% are black or Hispanic. Researchers and ICC staff characterize these clinical trials as therapeutic, intended for the benefit of the children, and researchers agree that pediatric drugs require testing in children because children metabolize and react to medications differently than adults do. However, children's advocates question the therapeutic nature of these experimental drugs, pointing out that they have debilitating, even fatal side effects, including anemia, muscle wasting, organ failure, fatal destruction of bone marrow, the site of red blood cell production, life-threatening liver diseases, cancers, bodily deformations, brain damage, painful and fatal skin conditions and likely genetic mutations, liver swelling, unsightly fat deposits, and skin necrosis, death and sloughing of the skin. Some of the candidate AIDS medications are being tested to determine their toxicity. Children as young as four were given cocktails of up to seven potent medications, although physicians are normally reluctant to give young children even approved powerful medications. Little, if any, benefit accrued to the infants from these risky procedures, because although some were HIV positive, they were too young to have developed AIDS. One study is of stavidine alone, or in combination with didanosine, a combination that has killed adult women. An experimental vaccine administered to children as young as 12 months utilizes live chickenpox virus, even though it can trigger the disease itself. A study titled HIV Levels in Cerebrospinal Fluid required that infants undergo a spinal tap, a risky, invasive, and painful procedure. There was even a study on HIV-negative children that used an experimental HIV vaccine. By law, such a non-therapeutic study on healthy children can convey only minimal risk, but the vaccine's risks are unknown. Also, some of the experiments did not involve HIV therapeutics. One drug trial tested a herpes medication for tolerance, safety, and pharmacokinetic information. Another investigated reactions to a double dose of measles vaccine, in six-month-old infants. For its part, Columbia University released a statement denying that the drug's side effects were serious enough to warrant discontinuing treatment. However, this should have been the parents' call, not the universities or the ICC's. But guardians and parents who adopted HIV-infected children have found the ICC, ACS, and researchers arrayed against them when they have tried to take children off medications they found to be harmful. In explaining her take on this struggle, Dr. Painter has said, We're having an increase in referrals over the last years to deal with medication adherence. There are a fair number of children whose HIV illness may be well controlled, but whose families are experiencing difficulty complying with the child's medication regimen. By referrals... Painter means children who are torn from parents and returned to the various agencies when these parents and guardians balk at dispensing the investigational drugs. Federal law gives parents the ultimate right to decide when the promise of an experimental treatment exceeds the risks and side effects and gives them the right to withdraw a child from a clinical trial at any point in the experiment. But most of these children have no parents, or their parents have been deemed unfit by the courts to care for them. The children are too young to give legal consent to participate in the HIV studies, and their legal guardian is the city, or an allied governmental agency, which is the same entity that has committed to conducting the trial. The New York City Department of Health enrolled the children in drug trials in the early 1990s, and the city's ACS gave permission for the ICC children to be used. The agency receives funds for hosting the trial and needs a minimal number of subjects. Therefore, it should not also be the arbiter of the children's participation. It is not disinterested and cannot be objective. Yet the agencies are allowed to enroll the children as research subjects en masse, although federal regulations require individual consent for each child. In fact, the ICC forces the medications upon children over the objections of foster or adoptive parents. Mona Newberg, a New York City teacher, adopted her great-grandniece and great-nephew and removed them from the ICC in 2002. She refused to sign papers permitting her children to be used in AIDS experiments, but told a journalist in the fall of 2003 that ACS has signed for me when I didn't want to give Sean, her adopted son, drugs. When I said no, the ACS caseworker grabbed the form and said, I'll sign it, you don't need to. They're always switching medications. They never ask me if it's okay. Jacqueline Herger is another foster parent, and one with a unique perspective. She is an experienced pediatric nurse who worked at the ICC for years before she fostered two children as a prelude to adopting them. One Saturday morning, ACS came to the door, accused her of child abuse, and seized her children. Her crime? She had withdrawn them from the experimental AIDS medications and insists that they had become happier and healthier. As a medical professional, she is better able than most to ascertain whether the benefit of an experimental drug justifies the harm it is doing the child but ACS has prevented her from seeing her children. Painter seems to validate Herger's accounts when she describes the ICC policy toward compliance with the investigational drugs. What we're asking of our families and patients in terms of adherence is something beyond 100%. All of their medicines, all the time, whether they have them on hand or not, whether the medication makes them sick or whether they're sick with a concurrent illness. Despite Herger's status as the children's foster mother and her medical training, the ICC trumps parental consent for these children. Such a scenario evokes the question, is the state's chief motivation a desire to maximize the children's health or its own desire to complete AIDS research protocols? The BBC documentary claimed If the children refuse the drugs, they're held down and have them force-fed. If the children continue to resist, they're taken to Columbia Presbyterian Hospital, where a surgeon puts a plastic tube through their abdominal wall into their stomachs. From then on, the drugs are injected directly into their intestines. ICC spokesperson Gerald McKelvey acknowledged that the city sometimes took children from foster parents who had refused to administer the drugs. But he denied to Nature Medicine that children were ever forcibly administered medications. Of course some kids were reluctant, as kids are, to take their medicine, he said. It was not children, however, but recalcitrant parents, some of whom were medical professionals, who were reluctant to administer medications because of the debilitating effects on the children and the fear that they were being exploited as non-consenting subjects. For several years, U.S. research protocols with African American and Hispanic children, who constitute virtually all the American children living with HIV, have exposed an alarming willingness to jeopardize their health and rights. A Public Health Dragnet The legal constraints that had been deemed inappropriately repressive for white gay men in the 1980s and early 1990s have been vigorously applied to African Americans, especially African American men. Increasingly, laws have mandated the testing of whole groups, such as pregnant women and prisoners. At least 29 states punish or incarcerate those who pass the virus on to others, and scores of similar bills are waiting in the wings. It has bothered me that when more punitive laws have come up, it is black people who are affected, observed the late Dr. Walter Shervington, a New Orleans psychiatrist and former president of the National Medical Association. The issue of contact tracing best exemplified the shifting mood. There are two types of such tracing. Voluntary notification programs allow the patient with HIV to notify his partners. But in mandatory programs, Health department officials notify the patient's sexual contacts that they are at risk and must be tested. Patients are identified by code, which partially preserves confidentiality, or by the person's name, which affords none. New York State, the former infection epicenter, which once championed patient advocacy and privacy protection for AIDS, has legislated a quite restrictive form of mandatory notification. If you test positive for HIV in New York, the doctor must report your name to the state. The county health department obtains the names of your sexual contacts and informs them that they are at risk and need testing. Contact tracing is an uncomfortable but essential technique of infectious disease control because it attempts to bridge a real information gap. The February 1998 Archives of Internal Medicine revealed that 4 out of every 10 HIV-infected persons fail to warn partners of their status and that only 43% of these silent carriers use a condom. Blacks, men or women, are even less likely than whites to alert partners of their HIV-positive status. Prominent public health officials, such as Surgeon General David Satcher, warned almost a decade ago that contact tracing was essential to the early testing and tracking that can reverse the pandemic. In 1996, Satcher observed, We're getting to the point where we have to have a better form of identifying and treating AIDS, but to be successful, we have to treat it like other STDs. However, he added, we have to be able to ensure confidentiality. Patient confidentiality is a medically sacred article of faith that physicians never abandon lightly. Why, then, have these laws abandoned the concept? The CDC was affected by pressure from conservatives who controlled the budgets on Capitol Hill, explains attorney Mario Cooper, a Harvard AIDS Institute advisor and the founder of Leading for Life, an advocacy group for blacks with AIDS but they have made a huge mistake in aggressively pushing it without a fundamental understanding of its impact on people of color. Many in our community don't get tested for STD and AIDS. They see such programs as monolithic institutions that grew out of Tuskegee experiments. Notification laws were also problematic because they relied upon overburdened public health departments. This curiously pathologizing stance toward infectious disease indicts African-American behavior as criminal rather than addressing health behaviors supportively in the more usual public health mode, which utilizes intervention. Today, epidemiological discussions focus on the high rate of AIDS in African-Americans and in Africans, which is necessary and appropriate. But these discussions also pair the high rates with drug use and profligate sexual activity in the face of a resounding silence on other important issues, such as lack of access to medication and medical care, an inequitable economic and human rights climate, and even dangerous medical practices, which are discussed later in this chapter. The dearth of consistent, high-quality care for HIV infection in inner-city areas is simplistically ascribed to black fear and distrust of medical treatment and research. Such problems as limited access to life-saving antiviral drugs get short shrift. Overburdened or bankrupted AIDS drug assistance programs that are charged with distributing effective AIDS medications sometimes find themselves unable to do so, even though the cost of these drugs has fallen dramatically over the past eight years there is little discussion of how best to lower the high rate of HIV infection in children. Silence governs those risk factors that cannot be laid to a blame-the-victim paradigm that emphasizes patients' high-risk behaviors. This blame-the-victim approach to AIDS control has backfired by instilling denial or a false sense of security in many African Americans. HIV infection has been saddled with so much cultural baggage that many people believe it strikes only the sexually promiscuous, drug-addicted, desperately poor, or immoral people. Many black people cannot believe diseases such as AIDS or hepatitis C can affect someone like me. News accounts feed this misconception by focusing on black people with HIV who live in squalor, have lost custody of their children, and who turn to crimes such as prostitution to feed a drug habit so do many narrative-driven medical journal accounts. These tragedies are real, but they are far from the whole story. Because a single act can transmit infection, sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, can affect anyone who is sexually active, not just the promiscuous. Church-going grandmothers can be infected as surely as club-hopping Romeos, but they may not realize this and so may not take steps to protect themselves. AIDS in the Laboratory Poorly performed medical research has fed the high rates of infection among African Americans, and it also has fed the low rates of appropriate treatment that have plagued blacks from the first days of the epidemic. The U.S. medical establishment has failed to provide African Americans with equitable attention, testing, medications, and recruitment for medical trials. But these failures have been ascribed to African Americans themselves in the medical literature and provide another manifestation of the the blame-the-victim mentality. Misguided research has caused HIV therapy to be withheld from blacks, even as it has heavily ladled guilt for the spread of AIDS upon their shoulders. For example, in the early 1990s, a Johns Hopkins study revealed that HIV-positive whites, but not blacks, were doubling their survival time by taking AZT. Conventional wisdom has long laid this disparity at the feet of African Americans by insisting that blacks resisted taking AZT, later to be known as zidovudine, because of fear and distrust engendered by the U.S. PHS syphilis study at Tuskegee. With a singular myopia, Scientific and social science researchers have ignored the appalling wealth of other pharmaceutical and infectious disease experimentation with blacks to seize instead upon a single PHS study with very imperfect parallels to the HIV crisis. Celebrated surveys did not ask open-ended questions to determine the roots of black aversion to AZT. Instead, they asked specifically whether the Tuskegee syphilis study was the factor. Popular coverage widely conveyed the assumption that the emotional overreaction of blacks to this single investigation abuse was at fault. But this monomaniac focus upon the Tuskegee syphilis study as the catalyst for AZT aversion ignores some pertinent research history. In February 1991... Soon after azidothymidine was embraced as the first effective drug against HIV infection and AIDS, Department of Veterans Affairs researchers informed the FDA that AZT did not work well for black patients as it did for whites. The VA researchers also suggested that because AZT's side effects could imperil health and even life, AZT should be withheld from blacks as an inefficacious and possibly dangerous medication. Alarmed physicians were loath to prescribe AZT to blacks in the face of such ominous findings. The prohibition against using AZT to treat blacks quickly became entrenched in the therapeutic canon. However, the VA study had utilized a relatively low number of African American patients and had not been designed to ferret out racial differences. This dramatic racial disparity generated research results that were a fluke, rather than an authentically disparate racial response. Later, rigorous research unmasked salient errors in the study, and revealed that AZT was indeed efficacious for blacks. But this proved too little too late. Physicians remained slow to prescribe AZT to their black patients, and these patients were slow to accept it. No government or medical entity undertook the large-scale public relations effort that would have been necessary to repair the damage done to AZT's image. The reputation of AZT was permanently tarnished in the minds of African Americans, and for a while, in the opinions of the physicians who cared for them. As a result, HIV-positive blacks quickly progressed to AIDS, promptly developing the severe opportunistic infections, cancers, neurological damage, and decimated immune system that heralded the syndrome. Medical researchers and physicians, not fearful black patients traumatized by the Tuskegee syphilis study, are responsible for blacks' aversion to AZT. In 1997, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention issued some long-overdue good news about AIDS, a heartening 13% decline in the death rate, the first in the 15-year course of the epidemic. What's more, new combination drug therapies were slowing the progression from HIV to AIDS. These included protease inhibitors, such as Inverase, Crixivan, and Norvir, For most HIV-positive people, protease inhibitors promised to parallel insulin use for diabetics, not a cure, but effective management. But once again, African Americans had not shared equitably in either the declining death rate or the distribution of the new drugs. The AIDS death rate for whites fell 21%, but the black death rate dropped only 2%, and the rate for young black women actually rose. At the 6th annual HIV conference, San Francisco's mayor, Willie Brown, warned conferees, We are now on the threshold of a new set of problems generated by success, because the drugs are terribly expensive and a whole forgotten class of people are not getting them, including people of color. Dr. Wilbert Jordan, director of the AIDS clinic at Martin Luther King Charles Drew Medical Center in Los Angeles, predicted, Protease inhibitors are very expensive, about $14,000 a year, and the majority of people who won't get them are drug users, especially in the black and Latino populations. The new drugs were too expensive for people on Medicaid, which imposed a monthly cap on drug expenses. HMOs often restricted pharmacy benefits to an average of $3,000 a year, and the demand for the drugs quickly overwhelmed the pharmaceutical companies' stores of free drugs for compassionate use. Despite the pharmaceutical companies' healthy profits, states were finding themselves strapped by the costs of supplying medication to the poor. The $200 million in federal and state AIDS drug assistance programs, ADAP, that was set aside to provide the drugs to those not poor enough to qualify for Medicaid was half of what was needed. ADAP funds varied from state to state. New York and California residents enjoyed expansive programs, but only 10% of the HIV positive in Florida qualified. Some states, such as Kansas, resorted to a waiting list. Valerie Papaya Mann, executive director of the AIDS Project of the East Bay, validated fears of inequitable distribution. In San Francisco... On every other corner, there's information about the latest therapies. But in the East Bay, we have people of color, low-wage earners, and less AIDS information. Many doctors serving the indigent are not prescribing the protease inhibitors. My clients, 85% of whom are African American, are still dying and will still die unless there is a loud outcry that says we all should have access to the drugs. Nor was money the only barrier. Early protease inhibitors were taken according to complicated schedules, and they fostered drug resistance when inexpertly prescribed or taken erratically. Physicians and policymakers frequently worried aloud that if the poor and homeless were given protease inhibitors and proved noncompliant, they would abet drug-resistant strains, which would prove impossible to treat. Instead of focusing on education and other routes of increasing compliance, doctors routinely withheld protease inhibitors from people in lower socioeconomic groups, such as the homeless and drug abusers, among whom African Americans were disproportionately represented. Mario Cooper complained, Doctors are selecting people out because of racial issues. Some won't even offer drug abusers the option of taking these drugs. One African-American physician responded, My patients with drug problems are all compliant. It's ridiculous to withhold medication from drug users on the assumption that they won't adhere to the treatment schedule. Who understands the importance of taking drugs on time better than an addict? The prices of life-sustaining HIV medications have fallen dramatically since the fall of 2000 because of international competition between generic and proprietary drug manufacturers. Now the price of AIDS therapy costs as little as $140 annually and is within the reach of all African Americans. The Abandoned Vaccine But new barriers to effective treatment threaten to replace the old ones, and many suspect that at least one is being driven by research biases against black patients. Many African Americans and their medical advocates responded with outraged disbelief in 2003 when AIDSvax, the first vaccine to enter Phase 3 trials, see Chapter 10 for a description of Phase 1, 2, and 3 clinical trials, was dismissed as worthless and abandoned, even though some data indicated that it actually protected Blacks and Asians from HIV infection quite efficiently. The New York Times joined other major newspapers in lamenting the trial's failure. Its headline read, Large trial finds AIDS vaccine fails to stop infection. And the trial's dramatic success in African Americans and Asians was buried within the story, surrounded by qualifications and vague expressions of skepticism. No stories asked why the trials of AIDS Vax, developed by VaxGen of Brisbane, California, were being halted when its efficacy in minority groups ranged from 67 to 78%. Among minorities, principally Blacks and Asians, only 3.7% of vaccinated participants became infected with HIV, in contrast to 9.9% of minorities who took a placebo. The vaccine cut the infection rate in Blacks by 78%, 66.8% after statistical refinements. Among the 314 African-American volunteers, 9 of the 111 subjects who took the placebo, 8.1%, became infected, compared to 4 of the 203 African-Americans who received the vaccine. VaxGen said the vaccine protected two-thirds of African-American, Asian, and mixed-race volunteers just 500 minority subjects participated, but the results were still statistically significant and carried, at most, a 2% possibility that the heartening results arose by chance. The statistics look impressive, said Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the nation's top infectious disease professional. But among whites... No statistically significant change emerged between vaccinated and non-vaccinated groups of subjects. Researchers did not yet understand this disparity with regard to the vaccine. But such disparate effects are not unheard of. In clinical trials, a recently tested herpes, HSV2 vaccine, worked much better for women than for men, although researchers are not sure why. But although the gender disparities in the herpes vaccine efficacy were accepted, the racial disparities emanating from the HIV vaccine trial were not. This led a team of researchers from the NIH, CDC, University of Washington to review the data. Dr. Dean Fullman of the National Institutes of Health, NIH, reanalyzed the data and determined that a significant result could be obtained by chance about 22% of the time when the data from the 15 subgroups, including African Americans, were evaluated. The researchers concluded that the VaxGen data indicating protection for African Americans were spurious. This contradicted VaxGen's claims that it had tested the minority group data and found only a 2% possibility that the figures showing protection against HIV could have arisen by chance. Fullman explained this by alleging that VaxGen had never performed the necessary tests that would allow it to make this claim. The Fullman study seems to have laid African-American hopes for a benefit from the VaxGen vaccine to rest. Experts largely agree. For example, the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, IAVI, report for February to April 2004 included an article entitled, Denouement: No Efficacy in Racial Subgroups, No Efficacy in Thai Trial. These experts may well be right, and the vaccines hoped for effectiveness against HIV in Black and Asian segments of the population may be chimerical a mere statistical mirage. But there is room for doubt, and it is important medically and socially to commission more exhaustive studies before deciding that the benefits are illusory. Also, compare the rapid dismissal of this purported special racial benefit with the uncritical acceptance of Bidel's supposed special racial efficacy, as detailed in Chapter 13. One can then understand why some wonder if factors other than scientific rigor are driving the decisions. Incorporating larger numbers of African-American participants could help resolve any ambiguity. Despite the widespread assumptions that African-Americans will not participate in clinical trials, especially HIV trials, some researchers are very successful in recruiting black subjects. Emory University professor Otis Brawley, M.D., consistently recruited a large percentage of black research subjects while he was director of the Office of Special Populations Research at the National Cancer Institute. Doctors LaSalle L'Enfant and Clarence Grimm, among others, regularly meet or exceed their ambitious goals for minority recruitment in clinical trials. A New York Times article by Linda Villarosa has documented successes in African American recruitment by scientists such as doctor Beryl Coblin, principal investigator of Project Archive, and Elmerlene Robertson, an outreach worker at the University of Illinois at Chicago. They recruited hundreds of HIV trial subjects, 84% of whom were black women. Such programs demonstrate that even more blacks can be recruited when others invest in the trust-building that has worked for them and adopt large-scale recruitment efforts. Social justice demands continued evaluation of AIDS VACs, even if it does help only minorities. After all, African Americans do not represent a minority in the AIDS crisis. They constitute the majority of the people with AIDS in this country. Also, Research abounds for infectious disease therapies that work well for whites and not for blacks. For example, beta-interferon research escalates steadily, despite the fact that the drug is much less likely to rid infection from African Americans with hepatitis C than from their white counterparts. Funds and resources are constantly spent on refinements of the drug, as they well should be, because doing so helps protect a good portion of the population. However, more research and resources should go into finding therapeutics that work for African Americans, who suffer disproportionately from HIV infection. Also, should the factor that heralds aids VAC success in minorities prove real, not an artifact, it may not be biological or racial at all. It may well be a behavioral or environmental factor that can be adapted to other ethnic groups as well. Therefore, if this vaccine is ultimately shown to work for minority group members, a way might be found for it to protect whites. Even should the effectiveness prove to have a biological basis, it will probably, like most racial features, prove to be very imperfectly correlated with race. Whites will benefit from it too. Finally, The world is watching our decision on AIDS-vax. The World Health Organization mounted a 3x5 initiative to treat 3 million people with AIDS by 2005, and an effective vaccine would be an essential tool in the global struggle with AIDS. But we have an ugly history to overcome. The United States has consistently tested candidate medications tailored exclusively to the needs of the developed world by using the bodies of poor third-world denizens who are desperate for any type of medical attention. We have a moral obligation and a redeeming moral opportunity to ensure that the vaccines we design and adopt are vaccines that work for the most endangered populations. Enabling the production of such vaccines for the medically underserved at home is a good place to start.
4: Context of White Supremacy, that is the first audio segment uh, we will pick up uh, once we have our dialogue, what have you. folks have anything they want to share, we'll be right at the beginning of Chapter 14. Uh, if you, if you uh, have commentary you would like to share, uh, things that stood out, uh, feel free, to chime in, uh, the number to dial, uh, 641 71536 four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, that number again six four one seven one five three six four zero the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate uh, if you do not want to use uh, your phone you can use the free <clears throat> vote line uh, it's linked at black talk radio network the address if you need it is tiny t i n y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one uh, the address again, tiny, T-I-N-Y forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Uh, when you put that address in, look on the left side of the page, you'll see the link uh, for the free vote line. When you click that address, it'll open a tiny window on your screen. Select the drop down menu. And you will uh, see the number that I just gave out, which again is 641-715-3640. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is 564943. Once you put in the code, the next line, the final line, it will ask for name. You can click random keys, Uh, you can use a real name if you're comfortable with that, you can use a nickname, uh, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, Once you get all that entered, click the green button at the bottom, it will connect you to the live broadcast line. Uh, You should be able to hear us live, it is the same procedure. If you would like to participate, you'll see the dial pad on your screen, press star 6. When you do so, uh, you will hear an audio prompt to press the number 1. Uh, You do that, I'll see your hand on the switchboard, and we'll be able to get you on the screen. I feel like I have a a sneeze coming. Uh, Excuse me. Right on. Folks uh, would like to participate. Might have one more. Hopefully, uh, folks can chat. I can hit my mute button and clear my sinuses. Um, If folks have commentary they would like to uh, share, all the people who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, Feel free to participate. Let's see. Uh, okay. Yes, everybody's line should be open. Got you all. Everybody should be with us. Have you heard? Yes, sir.
5: Hey, I'm gonna be very quick. I'm snick in New York. Um, you know, if you ever wonder why um, when they do these um, this research and, and stuff, they always use um, white rats. You know, they're not trying to find cures for black people. You know, they're not using darker animals to do this research on. They're using like, the least melanated animals they find to see if this stuff works. And I would confess that if they found things that did work exclusively for black people, um, they would never let that hit the streets anyway. Um, they're not trying to help us in any way, shape, or form. Um, but I'm um, just hearing how such disparities and, um, the medicines that work for whites that don't work, same medicine doesn't work to, to, um, cure the same condition in a black person. It's definitely gone by, that's done deliberately. And I wouldn't be surprised if every medicine they test, they don't come out with the product that, um, works the best for the whites in the least for the blacks at the same time you know if something's going to really work for blacks even if it works for whites um, with the way they did narcissism they would never let that come out anyway um, so we're, we're getting the worst grade of medicine I think um, out of anyone and uh, all I can say is right here in Harlem in my vicinity there's so many drug stores I mean any place the drug dealers is now um, and all you see is elderly black people young black people People who you could tell just came home from the war, people who you could tell are mentally ill. I mean, the vines and all these drug stores is amazing. I mean, and it's um, it's the new hustle. And these drugs aren't even made to work for us in the first place, so they're probably killing us. And I'm with my line.
4: Right. 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 Thank you all for allowing me to uh, clear my sinuses. Uh, Other folks who dialed in who have uh, commentary they would like to share, feel free. I remember Thomas in New York talking about the uh, drugstores in his area, uh, the the high volume of them before. Other folks that we haven't heard from, do you all have commentary? Can I be heard?
2: Yes, sir. Yes, sir, Roz. Uh, good greetings to you, Gus. Uh, God bless you. If you had a sneeze, hope you feel better. Um, my allergies have been kicking my behind all day too, so I hope you feel better. Um, uh, yeah, I have a couple of notes I took here. Um, I'll start on page uh, thirty-four. There's a paragraph where she's discussing the documentary, uh, BBC documentary Guinea Pig Kids. And it says researchers and ICC staff characterize these uh, clinical trials as therapeutic intended for the benefit of the children and researchers agree that pediatric drugs require testing in children because children metabolize and react to medications differently than adults do. However, children's advocates question the therapeutic nature of these experimental drugs, pointing out that they have debilitating and even fatal side effects, including anemia, muscle wasting, organ failure, fatal destruction of bone marrow, the site of red blood cell production, life-threatening liver diseases, cancers, bodily deformations, brain damage, painful and fatal skin conditions, and likely genetic mutations, liver swelling, unsightly fat deposits, and skin necrosis, death and sloughing of the skin. Um, this, to me, just kind of shows that uh, black children aren't treated as children. Um, also, the all of these, these things that we've met read of a similar nature throughout this text um, just really shows to the intense effort to develop drugs that specifically affect melanated people um, and specifically the darker the people are, the more toxic or deadly that these drugs are. And um, even the fact that they said that these some of these drugs also created genetic mutations, obviously they must have been studying the effects of these things on a genetic level in order to even ascertain that they were causing genetic mutations. So this really really goes back to um, Melanin Apocalypse and that whole discussion with that sick white terrorist in regards to the books that he wrote. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. On the following page, uh, I335. There's a brief paragraph that says, for its part, Columbia University released a statement denying that drugs, the drug side effects were serious enough to warrant discontinuing treatment. However, this should have been the parents' call and not the universities or the ICC's. But guardians and parents who adopted HIV-infected children have found the ICC, ACS, and researchers arrayed against them when they have tried to take children off medications they found to be harmful. Again, this uh, goes to the fact that black people have control over their, do not have control over their own bodies or the bodies of their children. Um, Also, this speaks to the Voltron effect again, because all of these agencies and the researchers, um, rallied together in a combined white supremacist effort to basically completely force the parents uh, attempt to be in control of their children to partaking of these poisonous drugs. So again, there is no winning in the system. Um, it kind of reminds me of our uh, Minister Malcolm when uh, the system basically drove his mother insane by taking her children from her. Um, it just kind of made me think of that for some reason, I don't know why, but it did. Um, also the section, there was a section on page. 340 that says alarm physicians were low to to, to prescribe AZT to Blacks in the face of such ominous findings. The prohibition against using AZT to treat Blacks quickly became entrenched in the therapeutic canon. However, the VA study had utilized a relatively low number of African-American patients and had not been designed to ferret out racial differences. This dramatic racial disparity generated research results that were a fluke rather than authentically disparate racial response. Later, rigorous research unmasked salient errors in the study and revealed that AZT was indeed efficacious for blacks. This proved too little too late. Physicians remained slow to prescribe, excuse me, AZT to their black patients, and these patients were slow to accept it. No government or medical entity undertook the large-scale public relations effort that would have been necessary to repair the damage done to AZT's image. The reputation of AZT was permanently tarnished in the minds of African Americans and for a while in the opinions of the physicians who cared for them. This also just really talks about white terrorism in the form of false propaganda um in order to actually change black people's minds and the doctors who were taking care of them in a way that would negatively affect their care or better yet lack thereof um, or and lack of access to drugs that might have helped them <clears throat> excuse me to survive the um the illness that they were dealing with as far as um AIDS. And um I just find that just very interesting. It's something that white people tend to do all the time. And um, I wanted to just last speak about uh, the fact that my father-in-law has been home a little over a week and a half now from the hospital and we've had to get home care um, provided to him. So we had a nurse that came by the house to actually discuss the process and um, how often uh, that they would be by in order to take his vital signs and keep a track of his healing process while they facilitate the um, physical and occupational therapy to try and get him some of his mobility back. So when she came, there were just issues with the way that they started the process, um, they didn't really give any full, full warning. They just wanted to appear at any old time. So we had to reschedule the first appear, first person who came, which was one of the nurses. And um, when she came, I literally said to her within maybe three minutes of her entering the house, after being very pleasant, I said, um, you know, I make it a point to study the history of white supremacy as it's practiced in the medical industry. And right now, I'm in the midst of finishing the book Medical Apartheid, but I've also dealt with, um, and I brought up uh, Vanelia Randall, Dorothy Roberts, um, Alan Hornblum, Acres of Skin. I read, read, rattled those titles off, and I said, I make it a point to study these things, and I want to make sure that you're going to give my father-in-law the best treatment possible and respect our wishes. Because previously, when we were, we were asked asking the hospital not to give him psychotropic drugs, um they actually did which caused them to develop seizures. So I we gave them this back her this background and from there, um, you can tell she was kinda of taken back for a second. Um she kinda of paused. But um even though I, I still didn't trust her, um, her approach was markedly different than the conversations we had on the phone. And um then the second person that came maybe two or three days later Uh, she tried to impose herself by just appearing at the house. And my wife was unable to successfully, um, stop her from coming. And the woman just was like, Hey, I'm two minutes away. I'll be right there. I said, well, you know, I said, this is, this is your house. You can't let this woman just you know, bought her way into your home. You know, so I called her myself and I said, there's no way that you're coming to the house right now. I don't care how far you are. You're going to give us a a decent amount of um, time to prepare. I said, we're dealing with two people with mental illness here. There's a lot of things that take place at the drop of a dime. And right now we're dealing with the situation. So there's no way that you're walking into the situation the way it is. So after I talked to her, she backed down and then um, my wife felt better because she was highly stressed about this woman uh, coming into the house like that. And then the woman came the following day. And her approach was actually um, markedly different, even though I don't trust her either. So I just wanted to give you that update and just let you know that um, definitely, even like Dr. Vanity Randall had talked about, just bringing up the fact that you are aware of the system of white supremacy and how it functions can help you. And um, also the fact that um, that was something I wanted to do when he was in the hospital and my wife was averted to me doing that because she felt that he was going to be in their care and she didn't want to upset them. And I was trying to help her understand that it's not about upsetting them. It's about letting them understand that we have a knowledge of what they do to our people. And I actually brought up the fact that they administer different um Uh, Drugs and different toxic substances to our people, unbeknownst to those people. So I've said those exact things to the nurse. And when I said these things, obviously it had an an impact on her. And I said that was the same impact I wanted to have in the hospital. So I think now that this happened with the Uh, physical therapy situation, my wife better understands why I wanted to take that approach in the hospital. And I think, God forbid, we have to go back to the hospital with anyone. She will not be averted to me saying something like that to the doctors or medical practitioners working with my family. Thank you very much for listening to what I had to say, and I'll meet my mind there. For
4: sure. A plus in black self-respect. That is outstanding work uh, taking care of uh, your family, your in-laws and whole family and standing up to those doctors, healthcare practitioners. That is outstanding. That's exactly uh, what Dr. Uh, She's not a doctor, but Vanilla Randall talked about. She said it exactly on the program. Just, you know, drop a little bit of information. Uh, questions, uh, and you know which the type of care that you want for your loved ones, people that you care about. Do not be afraid to articulate that to these folks. Do not be intimidated. Outstanding. Um, any other folks that we uh, have not heard from? Anybody else out there we haven't heard from? Feel free to speak up if you have commentary.
6: Yes, ma'am be heard? Yes, sir. Okay, greetings, Gus. Greetings to other callers and listeners. Uh, some of the things that stood out to me Was in 1992, the 34 year old Milton Ellison was uh, shackled to his bed, uh, you know, because he had uh, TB. And you would think that, you know, uh, the doctor who said that sometimes that, you know, you have to use these rules that's on the book to allow caregivers to uh, get court ordered to force individuals to be hospitalized. So you would think that, you know, this was done to stop a pandemic or the health of the community. <clears throat> but then again, when you look a little closer, you find out that uh, they had ordered 33 tuberculosis patients to be held in the hospital against their will, and that 79% of them was black. And then that white support for the initiative was predicted on concerns that the black domestics who cared for their children, cleaned their homes, drove their cars, and prepared their meals might import tuberculosis into white households. And that would be, uh, the main reason why they would be shackling people to the bed. These, uh, uh, infected, uh, blacks, you know, which they considered to be vanguards of all these diseases. We have to take drastic means, uh, that's just the way the white supremacist mind works. And, When we get over here to uh well one another thing that uh DOT, the directly observed therapy where a nurse would uh from the public health professionals would show up and and help the uh the patients. Turns out that, you know, that was uh had monetary uh motives because you could actually get more from the worker going to the patient's house then the patient using Medi- Medicaid, and then a routine doc's appointment. So then again, you see a blatant disregard for the health of black people, but uh, uh, monetary gain uh, being made from the demise of black people. And <clears throat> uh what I do like about uh, Miss Harriet Washington is she gives uh, some conclusions or some uh, some type of solutions to some of the problems. In her words, you know, like in on page three twenty nine when she said, "Public policymakers might also consider a better coordination." Court, <clears throat> coordination of public health systems to give immigrants, homeless, prisoners, and migrant workers easy access to treatment. Currently, health policies simply abandon or incarcerate the infected as non-compliant when they fail to scale the informable barriers of cost and access between themselves and good medical care. So, It's just that if you're black and you're poor in this society you're just gonna be relegated to the bottom of the rung and uh they just don't care. And I found it alarming that on her section on AIDS she didn't mention doctor Robert Gallows, who was responsible for, you know, linking uh this HIV and AIDS because, uh, as we know, HIV is a virus and then AIDS is a syndrome. So there's some uh, speculation on whether or not uh, HIV even leads to AIDS. Uh, I guess most people assume that it does. But it's very suspicious that the Epic Center uh, they so-called the Epic Center, would be in mostly predominantly black areas, such as the New York City, and then later on, I take Atlanta. Uh, <clears throat> she did mention uh, this uh, white uh, terrorist, uh, Gutan Dugan, the patient zero, who knowingly infected other men. You know a white Canadian terrorist that uh she didn't mention that uh they didn't track this guy down until March of nineteen eighty four and that was the month that he had died, so he was able to uh terrorize uh a lot of uh gay men and spread the disease and by him being white. Uh, Somehow they could not track him down and 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 put a stop to him. And then they want to mention, out of all the uh, black people that uh, had AIDS or HIV, they want to mention the two innocent victims, Ryan White and Kimberly, but Jersey Berkeley. Anyway, these two white innocent victims call the media attention, and then there's thousands of black people that probably uh, and most likely uh, acquired this disease or condition in a similar manner. Just as though uh, the journalists would publicize and celebrate A hope for news about white men who had resisted illness despite long-term HIV infection. But the same media was silenced when it comes to uh, talking about a group of African women in 1997 that seemed to have achieved, achieved what the best laboratories in the world could not. They were not infected with the AIDS virus, although coming in contact with it. Several times. So we're starting to see, you know, again, you know, a deliberate attempt to minimize uh, the dangerous and uh, perilous uh, conditions of black people, even to the point of lying about uh, pharmaceutical tests that is supposedly uh, to help black people but had no effect on white uh, participants, Uh, we would have to be concerned about something like that. (laughs) And then to have you as uh, black activists or whatever to demand that the the public look into uh, this type of uh, treatment where it may or may not be effective, uh, towards you, but you can just see the uh, intentional disregard for the health of black people. And then uh, it's just atrocious the way that they uh, do the kids, the ones that are affected with with AIDS, even going so far as to uh, do spinal taps on newborns. I mean, it's just, it's past immoral and inhumane. But <clears throat> the HIV infection had been saddled with so much cultural baggage that many people believe it strikes only the sexually promiscuous, drug-addicted, desperately poor, or immoral people. Many black people cannot believe diseases such as AIDS and hepatitis C can affect Someone like me, she said, and said that even church-going grandmothers can be affected as surely as Club Hop and Romeo, but they may not realize this, and so may not take steps to protect themselves. I'll mute my line now, Gus. Uh, thanks for taking a call.
3: For sure, for sure.
4: Uh, that is a good point about Mr. Galileo. Even I don't, unless you know, I did a poor job reading. I don't even remember her bringing up the uh, connection that. AIDS came from monkeys. I know that remains a a controversial aspect of all that as well. That seems to tie in directly with a lot of what we heard throughout this book and the white supremacy and comparing black people to apes and all of that and black people always being the source of these uh, diseases that could threaten white civilization. But uh, unless you all heard it and I just missed it, I was, you know, sleeping or whatever and she glided over it and I just didn't pay attention. Uh, Did uh, we miss anybody? Anybody else have a hand up that we uh, have not heard from? Thought I saw other people. Other people had a hand up that we haven't heard from. Yes, sir.
7: Good evening, guys. Uh, good evening, to all the callers, listeners. Um, sent from South Florida. <clears throat> um, kind of a personal, personal uh, uh, revelation, but um, you know, I was listening to about about uh, HIV and about AIDS, about the spread of it, about um, you know, the the. the Illusion that it was, you know, the medication was, was, uh, that the medication, you know, was 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 there to help, and you know, but it, it already our, our communities had already been affected by distrust. That you know, no matter what they were putting out, you know, more than likely it was something to, to hurt, uh, you know, hurt our communities. Um, what I wanted to say was was that. I um I my significant other has been um has been diagnosed with HIV for mm, maybe 13 or 14 years now. She actually was diagnosed maybe 12 years, but she, she she knows that uh maybe for about 14 years that she's been um she's been positive and um we've been together for a little over uh about 11 years and she just, she just, uh, she just recently, not recently, maybe within the last six years, she just, she came to grips that, you know, she would have to take the medication. She started having, you know, different ailments from the, uh, different symptoms from the, from the ailment, from the the, the, the disease. And, uh, so she, you know, broke down and started getting the, started getting, um, medication. And, um, you know, it it it, it the symptoms went away, certain things went away, but it, she would always say, you know, I should come in with her, and I would I would always say, you know, I will, I'll come in with you, you know, for for anything. You, she she knows that, but as far as taking any medication, I'm I'm just not. I can't I I, I can't see myself doing it. I can't do it because the distrust is so deep-seated in my head that everything everything is a lie. Everything that they tell me that's good more than likely is bad for me and vice versa. So needless um, to say, you know, I'm, I'm HIV negative. You know, I'm non-reactive. Um, and I've been this way for, you know, since we've been together. And mind you, you know, when we, when we first got together, it was something that she knew, but it was something that she kept from me for a host of reasons. Embarrassment, you know, and other things. Um, but she kept it from me. But I always knew, I always saw that my spirit it was something she wasn't tell, telling me. So she finally came out and told me. We conversed about it, cried about it, everything else about it. Decided what we were going to do. She started taking the medication. So maybe about, uh, about a year, year and a half ago, um her doctor her um her physician <coughs> excuse me her physician wanted her to you know actually she have a significant other of course she does and actually you know that i be brought in you know it's just i forget the name of the program and I forget the name i I know the medication that they give you through the program it's uh called true bottom and uh but I forget the name of the program, but what it's supposed to do is the medication that that HIV and, and AIDS patients are on, it provides, so they say it provides a, a 90, I think an 85 to 95% chance that the, uh, that the significant other, the one if they don't have, if they haven't contracted the, 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 the ailment, uh, AIDS or HIV, that they won't get it just on the premise of the medication and what it does. And, um, uh, but always, you know, kept always said that you know stay protected. Always have protected sex, um, and you know the cleaning regimen, just everything that goes along with it. So I just I don't know. I wasn't being ignorant. I wasn't being uh, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know what I mean? I wasn't being uh, uh, you know if I get it, I get it. I don't, I don't. You know, let me go and live my life and party like it's whatever. You know what I mean? I didn't. I didn't live that way. I continued to you know. Eat how I've always eaten, uh, almost vegan. Um, I eat with, I eat with a lot of turmeric. Um, I mostly two to three times a uh, week. I chop a fresh garlic, uh, clove of garlic, chop it and boil it in some water with some sea salt and I gargle some and I, I drink, I gargle it and I drink uh, some of it. And, um, I've, you know, I've been doing that for years and the lady, I ended up going in with my, with my wife and, um, I allow her to, the uh uh not physician but the uh, nurse, whatever you call, it. I allow her to take my blood. And she ran you know, ran all the tests on you know, my blood everything was uh A one. And um so she asked me, you know, am I in fear of contracting it? And I told her, No, I have no fears whatsoever. I don't I don't even believe you know, I started to go into my beliefs and things like that. And she was like, you know, well, regardless of what you believe, you know what I mean, it's probably a good idea that that we go ahead and, and get you on this medication, you know, so you can stay safe, you know what I mean, stay uh, out of out of the red zone. So she proceeded to go, you know, I guess go and write me up medication and stuff like that. And my spirit just kept screaming at me, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So I stopped there and I told her, said, well, you know, I was, I only came in as a, you know come in with my wife to show his support, you know what I mean, but as far as taking the medication, as far as signing up for this program, I don't feel it's something that I should do, and she, uh, she said, she asked me why, and I simply told her, you know what I mean, I don't, I don't believe that, that (laughs) this will affect me, like I said, not being naive, not being, not, it's not like I'm not paying attention to what's been going on in the news, and what's, Happening to, to with this disease and and, and with both of these uh, ailments for years, you know. What I mean, I'm 37. I lived through the whole the, the, the uh, end of the 80s and the 90s. epidemic. I lived through all that. You know, I mean, I had family members die in front of me, around me. But something, my spirit just kept telling me don't take it. So, as I, you know, I, I kind of gauge people as I'm white, as I'm around them. You know, I pay attention to them. The 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 once I told her that I wasn't gonna take the medication, the 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 uh, the way she looked, it didn't look, it wasn't a look of aston like astonishment, like um, uh, I can't believe he's gonna not gonna take the medication. Knowing he's in direct, you know, he's in the red zone. He's, he's he he has unprotected sex with his partner. It's you know, I can It was a look of like, wow, does this guy understand how this ailment works? Does he? Does he? has he has he eaten it in some kind of way that do you it, it was it was like a look of amazement like you've been this long HIV' free you've been you know nothing's ever happened you guys always have upper tech sex and all these other things and wow i can't like she was she was like amazed so i she she tried again you know she asked me was i sure and i you know i told her hey you know i' I'm, I'm I'm fine and like i said that was about a year year and a half ago i continued to get tests. I continue, you know, to, to, uh, do what I'm supposed to do, exercise normally and things like that. And, um, I just, I don't, I don't have any ailments, so...
4: You think you can, so uh, wind I, it down in, like, you know, 60 seconds or so?
7: Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I just just wanted to say that, you know, maybe something else in, in, in the work is that, that they know about, about us and about, you know, uh, our ability to heal from, from a lot of ailments. And, uh Thank you for hearing my my, my comments.
4: I'll mute my line. Definitely appreciate uh, you sharing. Um, Just wanted to make sure I got, we had some other folks I wanted to make sure we got in as well, but definitely appreciate you uh, uh, sharing that. And uh, that medication thing is is major. Uh, We've had some broadcasts about that as well for people that are, as they say, HIV positive. Um, Is anybody that we missed, anybody who had a hand up that we have not heard from?
3: Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to share an experience that I had yesterday at the oral, oral surgeon. So um, I went to the oral surgeon. I'm supposed to get an implant. Um, I'm going over the consent form, uh, the procedures, and the risk. And I get somewhere on the third or fourth page, and um, the the assistant, she's rushing me like, oh, yeah, all you have to do is just um, put your... Um, your signature on the last couple pages an issue, and then the doctor would be right in. So I was like, okay, I just want to read over everything. And I get to, the, like, the last, um, like, all the way down to the third page, and I see where it says the bone that they might install would either be cow, pig, and then further down, a few sentences down, it says human or synthetic. So I told her, I was like, well, I'm not going to sign this yet uh, um, because I don't agree with um, some of the things that's on here. So, I was like, "I like to talk to the doctor first and um it was like thirty minutes till he came in. He came in, and I told him I was like, "Well, I just turned vegan, and um, I can't have any animal bone put in, in into my jaw, so he was like, "Well, what do you want human or synthetic?" and I was like, synthetic. He seemed like he was a little upset, and um or maybe he he just had so much going on, so basically he um rescheduled me, and I have to come back. I'm a little bit nervous, but i got to get it done. So that was my experience from yesterday.
4: Good job reading the form. Uh, That also can be a big help uh, if you're going to have some sort of uh, procedure, what have you. Try to do as much research as you can and then read all the documents uh, that they give you. Uh, That means going in a little bit early uh, for your appointment or what have you. Uh, If you have a consultation or what have you to to read over everything so you can get as much information as possible in making uh, these decisions, that is huge. And I think that's been a big part of the theme of the book as well in terms of them uh, taking advantage. Uh, of non-white people black people specifically who are poorly informed who they have poorly educated who might be illiterate or have some reading comprehension issues so they can't easily comprehend uh, the forms that are being written and they just use that to intimidate you you're just you know dumb old ignorant Negro you know we got you just just put your name on the form and be quiet We'll, we'll take care of everything um think we nabbed everyone if you had commentary you wanted to get in you should get your hand up now uh before we get to the second audio segment uh some of the quick things that i want to uh get in before uh we do so uh i this book man i have enjoyed it uh so much but uh it almost has just been a uh, referendum uh on visitors to the context of white supremacy over the years when she was talking about uh, the horrors uh, guinea pig kids and the documentary on uh, the horrors uh, that the children in New York experience where they were just going in and a lot of these children in foster care, which has popped up consistently over this text as well, uh, where they don't have parents or guardians that are able to step in, intervene for them and protect them. Uh, we had, and she references him uh, in her work and uh, some of the research that he did. Liam Sheff the infamous uh, he was on the program in 2009 and I think he might be one of the first guests that we had on the program to just storm off and leave Uh, and he was right on the very first question and I always point that out to people I really make an effort anytime we have guests on the program to not talk with them in advance because it's been my experience that it tends to be uh, a much less constructive program when I talk to people in advance white or non-white I spoke with Liam Sheff for like 40 minutes I told him the name of our program Context of White Supremacy This is what it's about. Analyzing racism. And he says, oh, yeah, absolutely. That totally exists. Like they're doing this stuff on the continent to keep black people from getting clean water. When, you know, they're talking all this other nonsense about its AIDS and this and government corruption When just clean water would solve a whole lot of the problems. And they make it so difficult. White people make it so difficult for them to get that and blah, blah, blah. And he's done all this research on uh, these them doing all these uh, drug experiments on these black children. Uh, In New York, it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, you talk about racism, like, oh my God. I mean, you see what they did to these children, it's terrible, blah, blah, blah. And we get on the program. And I just give him the definition as I do with everyone and he's buckets and buckets of words and talking around it and blah 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 and you know every you've always got strife between different groups of people and blah 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 and he can't even answer the question and it just says you know forget it I'm leaving uh, you can check out my word I'm, I'm not even going to have this and I'm like we talked for 40 minutes and <laughs> I told you this like this is what it means to be white it was uh, quite a moment in our early days like I said this was 2009 uh, when he was on the program but Whoa! We have done our work. I knew he was going to be popping up when she started talking about that because he's generally one of the first uh, people that folks reference when they talk about this incident in the history of uh, New York, the AIDS research on these children uh, from not that long ago, not ancient history. Uh, I really appreciate uh, earlier in Chapter 13 her continuing to point out the racial disparities uh, with all of this. And when they are talking about we have to lock someone up. Uh, because they're not complying with the medical procedures that we have outlined. So we're going to lock these niggers up and make sure that they are doing it. Of course, they would not do this to white people. I thought it was great when she gave the contrast of how this was not done uh, when it was white gay men in the 80s that were thought to be the source uh, of the HIV contamination, that they did not do the same thing uh, to them. Um, Let's see. appreciated also her making it very clear in terms of TB that this is not something that black people are uh, genetically uh, defective that is causing this problem, that this is really just racism, white supremacy uh, that is producing the alarming rates of TB and other ailments, Uh, that that's what it is. Uh, When you have people that are not given quality health care, that are not given uh, quality access to shelter, Uh, not given quality access to food and a host of other uh, constructive resources, you're going to have all sorts of manifestations of poor health. That's what racism, white supremacy is designed to produce. This book is, you know, that's the totality of this book. Um, Again, the black and Hispanic, because she talked about that explicitly before, I'm not sure if these quote-unquote Hispanic people, these could be black people too, or at minimum, this could be a much higher number, even if there are some individuals who are non-white and they use the label Latino or Hispanic, that this could be a much higher number of individuals who are black, highly melanated people, maybe they're black and they speak uh, Spanish, or they were born in Puerto Rico or Mexico or wherever the case may be, but these are individuals who would be considered black. Uh, I think that that should not be understated specifically since she talked about that directly earlier, uh, not that even long ago in the text that we covered. Um, the, I, had, I did take uh, issue when she said in Chapter 13 in the 1980s, however, AIDS was first identified. In what was then an equally marginalized group, gay white men, that is astronomically incorrect. I don't think there's any way in the world you could compile a book, Medical Apartheid, about the history of medical experimentation on gay white people, males, females, children, whatever the case may be. You can throw anybody in it, gay, lesbian, transgender, whatever else you want to throw in there. There is no way you're going to be able to compile anything close to an equal level of quote unquote marginalization, mistreatment, comparing what black people have endured in this part of the world uh, globally, if you want, and gay, transgender, lesbian, whites. I would even say that's, you know, on the border of gag factor. Uh, Again, like I said, with those comparisons, you really got to be cautious. But I felt like as the chapter continued, she just kind of made my point in talking about how they did not do this uh, with gay white men in the 1980s and even how they bent over backwards to say that, well, we are going to go ahead and continue to privilege uh, confidentiality for these patients and not going around to track down everybody that they've had sex with and that sort of thing uh, and how you do not see this same pattern Uh, this same procedure in dealing with black people later on when they have whatever uh, ailment may be the case. And certainly you can insert more recent issues with Ebola when they were talking about banning people from the continent period, uh, because they didn't want any of those, uh, any of that scourge coming over here. I even remember they had the news report where they had, I think it was a black female. She was from Rwanda. Uh, Some play way far away from where the Ebola outbreak was happening. And they're like, oh, my God, get this nigger out of here. Send her, you know, send her packing. Get out of here. Get back over there with, you know, Obama's people in Kenya or wherever you're from. Uh, Continuing. Uh, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I thought she, like I said, she made the point, I thought herself in the chapter, that gay white people were not treated in the same way as black people. Uh, The innocent. I think you all already touched on that. uh, Mr. Demi for Raj, you already already touched on when they have these innocent victims. I even thought it was suspicious that one of them was actually Ryan White (laughs) in the name to just make it clear. Uh, White and innocence got to be connected at all times. Uh, And the virginity, since so much of this book that seems to have been a major theme that uh, black uh, sexual mischievousness, uh, is at the root of a lot of these, whether it's, uh, HIV AIDS, whether it's syphilis, uh, whatever it happens to be, it's always because, you know, the niggers just cannot control their genitals. So we got to chop them off or whatever, uh, the case, but this white woman, uh, she was the total opposite of white purity and virginity, um, Yeah, you all already touched on them not talking about these uh, black females who might have uh, created an antibody or whatever the case may be, that they got no attention at all. Uh, I was reminded when she said AIDS became a black disease, I didn't do a sound clip just because I wanted to try to cover as much material as possible because we are right closing in on the end of the book. I think we have a chapter left or what have you, but uh, Mr. Fuller... He was on the program when I was trying to get people from the Black AIDS Institute because I'm not aware of them having a white AIDS Institute or an Asian AIDS Institute or a Jewish AIDS Institute or a gay uh, AIDS Institute. I'm not aware of that at all. And he said that that to him uh, is standard operating procedure for white supremacy and just associating. Uh, This disease with black people He even did a lecture, Mr. Fuller, about 30 years ago uh, Where he said that that's the way it is in the media uh, The way it registers on the brain Just AIDS, black, AIDS, black, black, AIDS, black, AIDS, AIDS, black, sex, AIDS, AIDS uh, So that you just connect that It's all together uh, in your brain Because that's always the way that you see it And even I think some of the billboards people had sent in over the years That they were showing in the D.C. area And I think some people said they saw them in California as well Where it would always have a black person Always someone with a lot of melanin uh, and they had a shirt on and it said, I'm HIV positive and God loves me. Like, what is that? <laughs> I have no idea. We talked about that uh, in the past before. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I can only emphasize that Dr. Francis Welsing, again, you play around with sex. The joke is going to be on the offspring. Uh, I think that has been uh, in the kind of second Portion of the book that has been a major theme, uh, continuing these dastardly uh, medical acts on black children who do not have guardians, adults who are there to protect uh, and look out for their best interest, and this kind of total disregard. I think even last week I heard. I think we went over the section where it was a black child. And they said, "Oh no, no, no! This child is 15. Uh, they can they are an adult, basically. This—this this is as grown as this nigger is going to get. They're an adult. We're not even going to treat them as a child, and they don't need a guardian to consent. This child is 15. They can consent for themselves. This total disregard for seeing uh, black children as children—it's just not there. You are a nigger to be abused, terrorized. That's what you're here for. Um, let's see." Yeah, that was amazing. I, I have worked in foster care before when the foster parent who had a medical background where she said that she didn't want to consent to her child being tested because she felt that her child, uh, foster child behaved better and was doing better health-wise when they were not on the medication and the foster was like, don't worry about it, you don't have to sign it, you're not in charge anyway. <laughs> we'll sign it and we'll do it. And, I mean, some of this stuff is gruesome. If you look at the work that Liam Sheff did, his performance on our program aside, uh, the work that he did and uh, the documentary uh, Guinea Pig Uh, kids and all that. I mean, it is gruesome uh, like them going into the stomachs of these black children to force them to take their medication. I mean, (laughs) and this is not ancient. I can only emphasize this is not ancient history. Uh, Again, the importance of talking to your children about racism, white supremacy, because there is no sanctuary. You're not safe regardless of your age. Uh, And again, this is not ancient history. This is not stuff that happened 50 years ago, not even 30 years ago. This is real, real recent. Um, Let's see. Whoa, yeah, that was a major sentence. He says, uh, Dr. Painter seems to validate Hoyger's uh, account when she describes the ICC policy towards compliance with the investigational drugs. What we're asking of our families and parents in terms of adherence is something beyond 100 percent. All of their medicines, all the time, whether they have them on hand or not, whether the medication makes them sick, or whether they're sick with a concurrent illness. Wow. Um, let see, last thing's I uh, get in before and mm Yeah, I'll stop there. Uh, They always, even with the ACD, uh, again, I have lots of suspicion around the the drugs. We've done programs about that. But there's always some excuse as to why black people get inferior treatment or are withheld from anything that's going to be constructive. When they say the AZT, that whites were doubling their survival time by taking AZT. But they said that uh, the black people, it didn't work out because we were just shiftless and lazy and just didn't take the drug or resisted doing it. Always some excuse to blame black people. That is consistent within the system of racism white supremacy i will uh stop there uh the person that dialed in uh 3637 did you have commentary you want to add before we get to the second audio segment
1: hello may i be heard yes ma'am yes um that she said what I, I just wanted to bring up how they just took the form away from the from the parent and said we'll sign it don't even worry about it we got it it's just at this point, it ain't much I can say about this book, but it's just making me nauseous and making me want to um like I heard you say last week um do something in medicine really. We really need to think about that. I mean, I know it's not it's not an easy field, but um we need to think about it. Cause this is this is horrible, horrible. And that's all I wanted to say.
4: Understatement. Absolutely. Definitely need those uh, black doctors, black nur- uh, nurses, black healthcare practitioners. Did anybody hear that? Because I did think that that would have slipped right in in terms of connecting uh, AIDS with uh, the theory that it came from monkeys in Africa and, and all of that. I thought that uh, it seemed like it would have been aligned with what we've been talking about. Did, did I miss that? Was I just asleep at the wheel and she said it and I missed it? Or did you all not hear it either?
2: Did not hear it at all. Um, and I, I remember seeing a documentary about that on um, PBS where they said that they traced AIDS back to the middle of the Congo and that it had something to do with um, the indigenous, uh, uh, diminutive blacks and them hunting monkeys and some specific species of monkey. At, um, I forget the species it was, was where they actually contracted it. And this is what they claimed as far as them tracing it back all the way. And they had all of these old slides of different blood samples from um, different ethnic groups in Africa in that forest region in the Congo. And they actually claim that they traced it back to um, what they call, I guess, agent zero, which is the original monkey that displayed the um, genetic characteristics of um, HIV is what they claimed in this documentary. And I believe it was either earlier this year or late last year, the documentary came out on PBS.
0: Hmm.
2: Cause that was right. And this book was
4: way before Ebola, but they were talking about that with Ebola too, about, you know, their. They're eating bushmeat or it's not anything, anything to associate black people with apes. Uh, they're hanging out with their cousins or eating their cousins or having sex with their cousins, the gorillas. And, you know, that's just causing more problems for the niggers on the continent. That's, you know, every other week they have a new story about that. But, yeah, I thought that would have – she could have slipped that right back in. I'm going to check the references so she has a footnote about that um, as we're doing the second audio segment. Anybody have uh, anything uh, quick, very concise that they need to get in before we get to the second audio segment or folks content for now?
6: Yes. Can I can I have one last thing? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, on page 341, the protease inhibitors are very expensive, about 14000 a year, and the majority of people who won't get them are drug users, especially in the black and Latino population. But well, it just seems odd that the price of life-sustaining HIV medication has fallen dramatically since the fall of 2000 because of international competition between generic, and proprietary drug manufacturers, now the price of AIDS therapy costs as little as $140 annually and is within the reach of all African Americans. Now, that is a thousand percent drop. I thought that was very significant. And uh, whites did not do that here. It had to be competition internationally. i mute my line.
4: Certainly not trying to help any black people. people. That even uh, even, uh, is in line, I think, with what she was saying about how you have a lot of focus on black people suffering with uh, what they call HIV AIDS on the continent, but not here as much. Although this book was published almost a decade ago. That might have uh, changed. Like I said, those billboards are up. I I do feel like it's... That might have changed to some degree since the time this book was uh, published. might be interested to hear her updated thought on uh, how that is represented uh, in this part of the world specifically. Uh, With that, uh, if folks had anything else that they uh, wanted to share, if you could just make a note, um, we'll have time once the second audio segment concludes. Uh, We have made phenomenal time in this book. I thought we were going to be on it much longer, but we have zipped right through. We're on Chapter 14, very beginning of Chapter 14, The Machine Age, African-American Martyrs to Surgical technology uh if you once we're done with this we'll have our uh, session where we can discuss and if anything uh, got left out that you didn't get to share right now we'll make time for it then context of white supremacy this is harriet a washington's medical apartheid audio segment number two
0: chapter 14 the machine age african-american martyrs to surgical technology It was cheaper to use niggers than cats, because they were everywhere and cheap experimental animals. Harry Bailey, M.D., C. 1977, on his Neurosurgical Research at Tulane University. It has become appallingly obvious that our technology has exceeded our humanity. Albert Einstein James Quinn was only 52 when he died in 2002, but he had suffered as no man had ever suffered before. No one had ever been implanted with the same version of an experimental artificial heart, and no one had suffered his constellation of dread, sequeli. He was apparently doomed by heart failure within six months. So on November 5th, his wife, Irene, said that Quinn had agreed to be implanted with an artificial heart that was intended to make him freely mobile, and that was described to him as his last chance at a meaningful life. His surgeon Dr. Lewis E. Samuels spoke triumphantly of Quinn having lived with his Abiacor artificial heart longer than anyone had expected, nine months. But Irene remembered James's post-surgical experience as a life extended but overrun by pain, disappointment, and despair. Quinn suffered a stroke the very next month that weakened his left side and left him with a tentative, halting gait. He soon grew unable to walk even short distances. A deeply religious man, he had hoped to go home to his wife, family, and church, but instead he remained tethered by exhaustion to a bed in a hospital suite, bound by a medical lifeline that sustained him, after a fashion, through a series of strokes and pneumonias. Quinn himself, when asked about his life with an artificial heart, was unambiguous this is nothing, nothing like I thought it would be. If I had to do it over again, I wouldn't do it. No, ma'am. I would take my chances on life. Finally, Quinn lay brain dead, which, as the doctors explained to Irene Quinn, simply meant dead. Her husband's brain was already gone, dooming any attempt to resurrect his body, they said and the abiocor heart still beat only because it was a machine whose computerized power source fueled its futile rhythm. All that remained, the doctors told Mrs. Quinn, was to unplug the machine from the insensate body that would never again think, move, feel, see, or speak. So Mrs. Quinn gathered her minister, friends, and family to join the surgical staff in the eighth-floor cardiac ICU. After Quinn's minister gave a brief eulogy, his cousin sang the Lord's Prayer, and Dr. Samuels had his nurse turn off the console that supplied power to Quinn's heart. Suddenly, Quinn sat bolt upright and thrust his arms out as if to the heavens before crossing his hands and lying back down. "'You're killing him!' screamed Irene Quinn. "'He wasn't ready!' Mrs. Quinn maintains that she and her husband had been deceived by the Abiocore Corporation, by the doctors who implanted the heart, and even by the patient advocate who was charged with helping them to negotiate the experimental treatment procedure. The advocate was supposed to explain to the Quins what life would be like with the experimental device implanted. But Mrs. Quinn now says that the patient advocate was actually an advocate for the hospital and the company, not for her husband. She sued Abiocore, And in June 2003, she and the company reached a $125,000 settlement. Hope and Artifice James Quinn was the second of six patients to be implanted with AbioCore hearts and the second to suffer strokes. Robert Tools, who was also black, received the first model in the Jewish hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, and died in July 2001 five months after the implantation. The medical coverage of Toole's implantation stressed his role as a pioneer because he was the first to receive an artificial heart that was fully self-contained and implantable. The abiocor device, like the heart, is a softball-sized pump that, like the heart, resides fully within the chest, without any protruding tubes or wires. But the abiocor is a machine, powered by batteries, and an experimental one at that. Although the coverage of Tools's new heart was almost universally positive, many African-American news media took a divergent stance, asking whether Tools had been selected for an exceedingly risky and untried surgery because he was black, and by implication, expendable. However, no media outlets asked another important question, should self contained artificial hearts become FDA approved and go on the market with a hefty price tag, will African Americans be able to afford them? Or will they be shut out of the technology that they helped to perfect? The same question can be asked of other bionic technologies being devised to replace diseased or damaged eyes, ears, and limbs. Geography, tradition, and culture intersect to make blacks likely research subjects for new technologies, but race and economics tend to place them outside the marketplace for these same technologies when they are perfected. This is a consistent pattern with novel surgical technologies. Marion Sims' vesicovaginal fistula research subjects were black slaves, and today groups of poor black women are least likely to benefit from the surgery. Today's highly visible role of blacks in testing heart transplantation technology parallels a deluge of medical journal articles documenting how blacks are less likely than whites to receive high-tech cardiac interventions once they are perfected and become the standard of care. The media coverage has also failed to question the significance of two successive trials with black patients. When Quinn's heart was implanted, Media outlets treated his story separately from the experience of Robert tools, thus ignoring its significance as part of a pattern. At this point, African Americans, who make up 12.3% of the population, constituted 33% of the implantees, almost three times their representation in the population. It is interesting that the incipient pattern was all but ignored in the United States because other countries plagued by black-white racial tensions, such as South Africa under apartheid, have faced the same questions. Pioneering surgeons there are well aware of the suspicions raised by such use of black subjects. For example, the first potential donor for the world's first heart transplant, chosen by South African surgical pioneer Christian Barnard, was a black man. But Barnard's colleagues warned him that if the experiment went awry, he would go down in history as an African Mengele, so he waited for the heart of a white subject. Abiocor's experimental protocol permits it to recruit its subjects from patients with end-stage heart failure, whose chance of dying within 30 days is at least 70%. The company is supposed to approach only those people who have no other treatment options. By June 2005, all 14 patients implanted with the heart had died, two immediately following surgery. The Abiocore heart failed in two cases. Twelve patients survived for two to 17 months, but even for those who lived past a few months, doubts reigned about the quality of their extended lives. Yet, Abiomed asked the FDA's permission to sell the heart as a humanitarian device exemption under a program that allows the sale of devices to patients who have no other options. When the FDA advisory panel denied this request, its chief, Julie Swain, questioned whether the abiocor was actually prolonging life, not prolonging death. Proponents see it as the subject's chance, however slim, for a longer life, and as a necessary step toward a device that may one day save millions from heart failure which kills African Americans at the same rate as whites. Critics point to the dismal post-surgical record of crippling strokes and pneumonia and the poor quality of life inflicted upon its subjects. Finally, there is the fact that some, like the Quins, were obviously expecting a very different post-surgical experience. Such expectations are an unaddressed feature of experimental remedies that, like the abiocor artificial heart, are offered to desperate patients with only months to live. Patients may find any chance at life irresistible and may not hear caveats about the limitations of the therapies, even if they are offered. But are such warnings offered in a fair and intelligible manner? Abiocor's consent form warned the Quins that death and disability are possible outcomes, but so do consent forms for gallbladder removal, nose jobs, and many other procedures that are considered relatively safe and routine. Other elements of Abiocor's consent form could be read as encouraging the hopes that the Quinns entertained. The informed consent process consists of much more than obtaining a patient's signature on a piece of paper. Informed consent is an ongoing process of patient notification and education. The investigator must explain the process in exhaustive detail to the patient, must divulge any financial or other interests that she has in the experiment, and must answer all the subject's questions. The scientist must also make sure the subject knows all the known risks and must inform the subject of new risks as such emerge or become known the researchers must also tell the subject that he can quit the experiment at any time. But such a guarantee is meaningless in an all-or-nothing experimental venture such as the AbioCore tests. Quitting the experiment means dying. Several studies have revealed that certain flaws tend to characterize consent forms. The forms use technical language and scientific jargon which makes patients further dependent upon an interpretation by the investigators conducting the study. The forms tend to exaggerate benefits and to underplay risks, presenting an overly optimistic view regarding quality of life during and after the experiment. Such understatement is typical of how the medical jargon helps to distort the portrayal of the likely quality of life. For example, the use of such words as Discomfort and fatigue may mask the potential for severe pain and crippling exhaustion. Such errors can mislead patients like James Quinn into unmet expectations from their experimental devices. But most of all, when the desperately ill are confronted with extreme measures and heroic experimental ventures, they risk confusing research with therapy, and so do their doctors. Patients rarely understand that physicians conducting the research are primarily interested in the research, not an individual patient's survival and quality of life. Witness the disparity between James and Irene Quinn's despairing assessment of Quinn's tenure on the Abiocor heart. This is nothing, nothing like I thought it would be, and his physician's buoyant claim that Quinn had survived for nine months. Abiocor also took a step that escalates the ethical debate. It asked the FDA to approve the experimental implantation of artificial hearts without the informed consent of the patient. The company wished to expand its pool of subjects by widening the experimental criteria to include patients who suffer massive heart attacks, even if they are unconscious or otherwise unable to consent. The abiocor company said it will encourage patients to select a health proxy, who is usually, but not always, a relative, to offer consent on the part of the patient. This, however, is not consent by the patient, and moreover, it is an unprecedented and wholly inappropriate role for a health proxy, who assumes responsibilities that devolve around therapeutic treatment decisions, not those that relate to radical experimental devices. African Americans are at least 20% less likely than whites to select a health proxy or to elect any type of advanced directive. Therefore, even in the scenario promulgated by AbioCore, an African American is more likely than a white to be implanted with an experimental artificial heart unwittingly and without input from any trusted person who speaks for him. Such a step would be an unconscionable erosion of informed consent, and it would disproportionately affect African Americans, who are least likely to have a health proxy and are most likely to be treated in an emergency room. It would also be dangerous, because although the company had hoped to begin marketing the heart in 2005, technical problems haunt the AbioCore heart. The hazards of the AbioCore heart were illustrated by the September 2004 death of Don Graham, the 13th person implanted. After only five months of implantation, Graham, a white subject, died as a result of an unspecified malfunction of the device, according to the Abiocor official Andrea Tenbroke. The 14th patient implanted died in 2004. The implantees lived for six months on average, and only one ever left the hospital. An FDA committee ruled against the heart's approval in 2004. Involuntary infusion AbioCore's request to conscript unconscious patients and extremists as experimental subjects is not unprecedented. At least 20 U.S. emergency rooms have been using another new experimental technology, artificial blood, for years without patient consent. Detroit hospitals have been quietly experimenting with a commercial blood substitute called polyheme, which is derived from human blood. To test this substance, emergency medical technicians and participating hospitals infuse it at random into severely injured, mostly unconscious ER patients who cannot give consent. Patients who require a blood infusion alternatively receive polyheme and blood during their first 12 hours in the ER. A similar blood substitute called Hemopure, consisting of purified hemoglobin derived from cow's blood, was first tested on moribund emergency room patients, but in South Africa. Hemopure's manufacturers say it is screened for the mad cow prion that causes bovine spongiform encephalopathy, BSE, and Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, CJD, in humans. But there are concerns about other emerging diseases. Nevertheless, it was approved for South Africa use in 2001, and is used principally in hospital emergency departments that serve black township patients. A safe blood substitute is devoutly to be wished because it would enable transfusions without the need to match types, and it would allow patients to avoid the risk of illnesses such as HIV, HCV, and other blood-borne pathogens. People with sickle cell anemia who need transfusions will face no hemoglobin incompatibilities, and surgery will become safer for Jehovah's Witnesses, whose religion prohibits the ingestion or infusion of blood. A safe blood substitute will replenish the stores of blood banks, which run low with regularity in large cities, and will serve ambulances that cannot stock blood because of its 42-hour shelf life. Hemopure lasts for two years at room temperature. But administering substances such as polyheme at random to accident victims and to emergency room patients without their permission is a troubling step. First, if polyheme, like the earlier substitute, proves injurious or fatal to some, this result will be unnecessary, because human blood would have treated them without experimental risk. Any injury will have been compounded by the failure to have sought the patient's permission. Also, the random administration serves the experiment's needs for randomization, but does not constitute good medical care, which should be predicated upon the individual patient's needs. Such emergency room research is likely to be conducted with blacks, not whites. In the 1980s, Department of Health and Human Services data confirmed that black Americans are more likely than other Americans to use emergency departments for their medical care and both a 2001 study in the Yale Journal of Health Policy, Law, and Ethics, and a September 2002 study in Academic Emergency Medicine confirm that this trend continues. Early test results revealed that subjects who received polyheme instead of blood suffered more adverse effects, such as shock, respiratory failure, and pneumonia, and a 49% higher death rate. Despite this deeply troubling finding, in May 2007, the federal government launched much more of the same, a $50 million, five-year, 11-site project to be managed by the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. It will subject approximately 21,000 patients to medical experiments without first asking their permission. The FDA has approved at least 15 such non-consensual research projects since 1996 when it began to allow researchers to dispense with asking patient consent for experimental treatment in life-or-death scenarios. This disproportionate use of black bodies to perfect cutting-edge medical technology is hardly novel. Even medieval medical lore entertained the belief that black bodies were suitable for use in experimental treatments. For example, a medieval engraving by 15th-century artist Girolamo de Cremona, entitled Saints Cosmos and Damien Transplanting a Leg, shows the transplantation of a black leg onto a white body. The story focuses upon the miracle of a saint made whole by the amputation of an infected leg and its replacement by another. But some who view it will focus instead upon the black grafted leg wondering about its provenance. Did it come from a truly dead body? In the background of the painting, which still hangs in the museum of the Church of San Marco in Florence, the artist is painting a black man with one leg entombed in a casket. Five hundred years later, in 1935, University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine gastroenterologist William Osler Abbott was developing a way to rapidly intubate the human intestine by inserting a tube from mouth to rectum that would enable doctors to treat intestinal disorders more efficiently. Testing the device entailed getting men to swallow 12 feet of rubber tubing, then submit to radiation scans to track the intubation. Jobless white men turned their noses up at the disgusting work and paltry pay. But through his black janitor, Harry, Abbott found poor black men who would submit for 50 cents an hour, possibly because he failed to explain how dangerous the repeated radiation exposures were. Abbott consistently referred to his subject pool as my animals, as when he cackled during a postprandial speech to Philadelphia's Shiraka Club, a group of physicians with an interest in literature I'm sure my animals had a larger intake of corn liquor pork chops, and chewing tobacco than the white rats in the medical school, but at least they were human. Abbott went on to describe how, once, a fluoroscopy revealed a bullet lodged in a subject's muscle, leading the doctor to muse, Such events led me to wish at times that I could keep my animals in metabolism cages. Those boys may have been short on morals, but they were long on gut. At least Abbott's despised subjects were consenting, if not informed. Researchers have also tested cutting-edge technologies without the permission and sometimes without the knowledge of the subject. For example, in his memoir, As I Remember Him, The Story of R.S., Harvard microbiologist Hans Zinsner recalls that when he needed specimens of live lice for his research on typhus, he approached a Boston policeman, who obligingly arrested the old coon that sells pencils down near the South Station, forcibly taking the vendor to the station house. There, Zinser retrieved his lice at leisure. Despite the man's protests that, I'm an American citizen and I got my rights. I don't know what you saw talking about the cause of science. The police threatened him with jail if he did not permit Zinser to harvest his lice for medical research. The use of engineered human cells for medical treatment is another example of medical technology devised through research on blacks, but from which they benefit less often than whites. In 1951, the science of cell line culture was founded with usually long-lived cervical cells from black Baltimore housewife and cancer patient Henrietta Lacks. Her cells were conventionally named HeLa, after the two initial letters of her first and last names. Without the knowledge or consent of Lacks or her family, George Gay, M.D., of Johns Hopkins Hospital, harvested her cells and used them to transform medicine. Vaccines could now be tested and lengthy experiments completed that would have been unthinkable a few months earlier. One advance was immediate and dramatic. The Salk polio vaccine was tested and perfected with HeLa cells produced by Tuskegee Institute Laboratories in 1952, only a year after Henrietta Lacks died. Today, the science of cell line culture has enabled cultivation and therapy with stem cells, immature cells that can develop into many other types of needed cells, including red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. Today, Many Americans and most scientists hail research with stem cells as the key to taming disease. The only identified group to oppose stem cell research are African Americans, 44% of whom are opposed to their use. This attitude may be driven by the racial disparity in current stem cell treatments, such as bone marrow transplants, because African American patients are less likely than whites to match with a donor. In the 1950s and 1960s, some surgeons still were quite candid about using black bodies bought cheaply for testing for new technologies. In 1955, Dr. Harry Bailey was a promising and ambitious young Australian psychiatrist who was remembered by friends and foes alike as possessed of a prominent arrogant streak. As a World Health Organization traveling research fellow, Bailey had worked in in several countries and in Chicago, before he arrived in New Orleans for a fateful collaboration with Dr. Robert Heath at Tulane University. Dr. Heath offered Bailey a researcher's dream, bold, adventurous projects, a surfeit of docile black subjects, a cadre of researchers as ambitious, arrogant, and ruthless as himself, and a deluge of funding, courtesy of the Central Intelligence Agency, which equipped Oversaw and bankrolled their research. The CIA charged the researchers with conducting extensive, ambitious mind control research because it was concerned that the Soviet Union and other U.S. enemies might have learned to control behavior via brainwashing. Among their many science fiction neurosurgical exploits was the array of electrodes that Bailey and Heath devised and then implanted into the brains of black subjects for as long as three years each. The team used the electrodes to deliver charges to the limbic system of the brain. This group of related brain structures includes the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the septum, which are key to emotions and judgment. By stimulating these areas, Bailey evoked pleasure, pain, joy, anger, sexual arousal, and other powerful emotions in his black subjects at will. The electrodes were designed to facilitate stimulation of the brain's pleasure centers, either by a remote operator or by the subject himself, using a transistorized self-stimulator unit worn on the patient's belt. Bailey did some of these experiments on black prisoners in New Orleans' Louisiana State Penitentiary, but made no mention of how he gained access to other hospitalized patients for such experiments, or whether any sort of consent had been sought neither he nor Heath ever mentioned what they told the patients. But Bailey reminisced about his methods at Tulane when speaking to a group of nurses in Chelmsford, back in his native Australia, twenty years later. Well now, this goes back to America. When I was working in America in New Orleans, there was experimental work being done there on cats, where they found that if you put electrodes down on the anterior part of the brain in the septal region between the two hemispheres and down, right deep down, sort of here, put electrodes in here, that you struck a inaudible, which had something to do with screwing and orgasm and pleasure and satisfaction. And if they put a wire in this and took it out and put it onto a push button, the cat would very quickly know that if it pressed the button, it got a little chop, and this was sort of a little orgasm. And so the cat would go pop again and get the taste of it, and the cat would go, pop, 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 pop. Here was something important. What did you make of it? So in New Orleans, where it was cheaper to use niggers than cats, because they were everywhere and cheap experimental animals, there wasn't much working there. The people we have been picking for the operation had really been at the bottom of the can. Nothing is going to help them. Shoot them is the only thing. So they started to use them, Negroes, patients in hospitals. And so the same area little box, was put on their paws with a button. They just went around, pop, 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 all the time. Continuous orgasms. Bailey also tested LSD and the drug bulbocapnine, which can cause catatonia and stupor, on African-American prisoners at the Louisiana State Penitentiary. According to one CIA memo, the agency wished to know whether bulbocapnine could produce aphasia, the loss of speech, anesthesia, memory loss, or a sabotaging of willpower in persons with a weak type of central nervous system. Decades later, some survivors sued the federal government and the CIA, which settled out of court and agreed to pay $750,000 to seven former mind-control victims. After his return to Australia, Bailey opened a deep-sleep therapy clinic for depression and a wide variety of other psychiatric complaints at Chelmsford Hospital in Sydney, which he operated between 1963 and 1979. The deep sleep therapy technique is a misnomer for patient abuse that Bailey practiced by placing thousands of patients with a wide variety of psychiatric symptoms into a barbiturate in Coast coma for two weeks, during which time he administered repeated electroshock therapy and implanted electrodes, and even metal plates into many of their brains without their knowledge or consent. Many patients deteriorated dramatically, but they learned only years later from news accounts what their doctor had done to them. He sexually abused some of the women patients. Scores of patients died, although Bailey concealed the true number by arranging for many worsening patients to be shipped off to other hospitals, where they died without ever regaining consciousness. Australian courts attributed at least 65 of his patients' deaths to unlawful and negligent treatment. But rather than face a criminal trial, Bailey committed suicide in 1985 with all, a barbiturate that he had used to destroy the minds of his victims. In his 1967 work, Human Guinea Pigs, physician Morris H. Papworth chronicled the use of black subjects to perfect new medical technologies. For example, he described an event in the 1962 experimental perfection of the new technique of trans lumbar aortography. A 31 year old negress had abdominal pains and urinary symptoms. And because the diagnosis was in doubt, it was decided to submit her to aortography. However, the needle, instead of entering the abdominal aorta, was accidentally pushed into the spinal canal, and the contrast medium was injected into the meninges, the protective covering of the brain and upper spinal cord. Forty-five minutes later, severe lumbar pain was followed by convulsion, and the patient died in two hours. Post-mortem showed a tuberculous left kidney, which could have been successfully treated. This chapter has described how, in a sparsely examined subtext of surgical research, African-American bodies have served to refine technologies from vesicovaginal fistula to artificial hearts. But unfortunately, once perfected, the distribution of that technology has not been colorblind. Blacks are likely to have less access to the technology. Safe Non-exploitative research into surgical technology is in everyone's best interest. But for African Americans to remain open to such research, medical policies and practices will have to do a better job of shielding black Americans from abuse.
4: And they certainly, certainly have no interest in doing that context of white supremacy i'm almost at a loss for words i think that is the second time in the course of reading this book that uh i have been rendered speechless we will get to uh, folks who would like to share the number to dial is 641 715 i know one thing i can say anytime from this point forward that anybody comes and says hey this is not terrorism this is just white privilege you should think of this book what you just heard is that white privilege Number again, six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. I don't want to hear any more. It's been difficult reading because this is just white privilege. You know, this is a little whiteness that we've been reading about for the past few weeks. I guess that's just what all this amounts to, whiteness and white privilege. Folks who dialed in who have a hand up, if you would like to share, if we have not heard from you, like you didn't share anything the first time that we discussed today, you should go ahead and call, get your hand up now. Let's not meander and wait till the last minute and then decide that you would like to say something. Go ahead and get your hand up right now if you know you would like to share. Uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Feel free to participate. Have you Hurt? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um
5: this book is um, truly um, a great book, very informative, laced with information, and um, I've been talking about it ever since we started reading it to everyone. <laughs> I think people probably I'd shut up. Um, but I have a whole lot to talk about now. Um, this synthetic heart. Um, man, if you think about it, um, just looking long term as white supremacists do, you know, this is getting into their big future plans, you know, their huge economic venture that will change the world when it really comes out and they affect it called transhumanism. Um, you know, putting computerized devices, bionic, you know, type arms and legs. I mean, that's the future. And um, you know, these black men who are you know, given this, um, you know, they they'll never benefit or be recognized for being, you know, the first guinea pigs of some of this technology that I'm sure by the time you see white people getting it, it will be completely perfected. Um, and the fact they only gave that black man um uh, this this like hundred twenty five thousand dollars for his death it shows um the lack of value of black people. Um, I guess the going rate these days are what, like $5, 6000000 they give you when you shoot your kid in the street? So it's going up a little, but it still doesn't compare to the value of a human life. The synthetic blood, the, um, polygene, I think it's called, used in the U.S., it has like a 40% failure rate, you know. Um, Where well, human blood would have a much higher success rate. And I think that's done intentionally. Um, in South Africa, they're given another type of synthetic blood. I can't remember the name, but it comes from a cow blood. And it's so um, synthetic, it could be unrefrigerated for two months and still be used. I mean, they're putting this inside of people. And that's where my antenna goes up, because I always protest that white people's blood is no good. Um, they need our blood to survive. And I think that's a huge reason why black areas with nothing in it will have always have a top notch hospital and a huge crime rate for people coming in there with um crimes where they need to take their blood and probably um exchange it for this polygene or something. Um, basically, um the blood banks have come up like crazy, um like <laughs> You know, you're not shooting each other. We need your blood. Um, you know, they're paying people for blood. You know, they're putting this in the newspaper sometimes, um, um, in the section where the jobs are. You know, hey, you know, $50, or us X amount of blood or whatever. I can even, sometimes I see the flyers in the train station. they definitely uh, all black people that on the flyers, you know, they're not trying to get black, white people to give blood, they're always trying to get black people. Uh, and I think um, black blood in South Africa may be their most valuable resource, the most valuable export they sell to Europe, because um, Europeans can't donate blood in the U.S. They have they it's a certain hemoglobin, such and such, they're not allowed. They actually add on the flyer. If you've been to Europe, well, nope, you can't give blood And they cannot come here and give blood. Um, The human, the black human body, you know, they do the same thing to um, Africa. You know, they pillage the land, like they take up the resource, let's just say aluminum. And by the time they package it, you know, no one there could afford aluminum for you. And here they are coming up with all these surgeries, using the black people, as the guinea pigs. And by the time they perfect it, it's going to be available for everyone to get who in black is going to be able to get it? You know, it is going to be covered by Obamacare, I'm sure. And um, that's how they're definitely getting it. And the last thing I wanted to add in is, um, you know, a lot of the times when you're talking about the HIV, and um, this book also did a lot of talking about um, people with drug addictions as well. And, and um, you know, I think that we really need to look at those things in particular um, the, the, the HIV and AIDS, you know, the black community at the same time as the crack, as um, biological warfare with the HIV and AIDS and chemical warfare with the crack because um, they definitely knew what they were doing and we were definitely targeted and reading this book is just pointing out like how, how deep the research they did in us went, you know, and how how much we've been used. I mean, anything that they give us, they know exactly how it's going to affect us long term, 20 years from now, and um, I'll
4: meet my wife For sure, for sure. Not ignorant. Uh, Other folks that uh, we have not heard from, if you had commentary you wanted to share, feel free.
2: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Yes, I wanted to, um, uh, great salient points, um, Thomas, in New York. I wanted to kind of touch on uh, some of what he discussed regarding uh, polyheme and the um, the BSC, not BSC, the other um, hemoglobin derivative that was derived from cow's blood. In one section of the um, the paragraph, it says, to test this substance, this is in regards to polyheme, emergency medical technicians and participating hospitals infuse it at random into severely injured, mostly unconscious ER patients who cannot give consent. And then for the um, cow, cow's blood-derived um, hemoglobin that's used in South Africa, it says, nevertheless, it was approved for South African use in 2001 and is used principally in hospital emergency departments that serve black township patients. So when – and, I mean, I, this makes me thank the creator. I never went to the hospital in a severely damaged situation, whether it's a gunshot wound or any other severe injury where you had to get a blood transfusion of anything of that type because you never know what they're giving you. Again, um, with the polyheme, this is being randomly provided to people who are unconscious and are not giving consent. And this uh, knowingly, like uh, Thomas was saying, knowingly that this has a uh, 40% success rate. And then of course, with South Africa, it's a, uh, an animal, uh, a, a mammal, another animal, but a mammal, uh, derives hemoglobin that they use, basically in black areas and probably only in black areas. And um, then we wonder why certain diseases are basically transmitted interspecies. I mean, first you have the STDs like gonorrhea and syphilis, uh, which were transmuted transmuted to blacks and other non-whites via rape sexual contacts with white people who were actually practicing bestiality with dogs and sheep and cattle and horses and all kinds of animals. And then you have these same creatures taking blood from animals who carry very dangerous diseases like mad cow disease and then they claim that they're um, screening the blood mad cow, but yet they're still giving it to black people. So I mean, gee that's just that's just as sick as it gets. And then on the following page, on two um three fifty, I think it's three fifty, 350, yeah three fifty three, it says early test results revealed that subjects who received polyhem instead of blood suffered more adverse effects such as shock, respiratory failure, and pneumonia, and a forty nine percent higher death rate. Despite this deeply troubling finding, in May 20, 2007 the federal government launched more of the same: a fifty million dollar our five-year, 11-type project to be managed by the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, and it will subject approximately 21,000 patients to medical experiments without first asking their permission. Again, this is something, like I said, even with my father-in-law, I brought up the fact that these people are doing things to us without our consent, and um, it's just it's, it's really horrifying to think of what they could be doing if you go in there for something seemingly simple and routine. Um, On page 354, there's a section of a paragraph there that says, Dobless white men turned their noses up at the disgusting work and paltry pay, but thought his black janitor, uh, Harry Abbott, found poor black men who would submit for 50 cents an hour, possibly because he failed to explain how dangerous the repeated radiation exposures were. Abbott consistently referred to his subject pool as my animals, as when he cackled during a post post a prandial speech to a Philadelphia Chiraca club, a group of physicians with an interest in literature. I'm i am I'm sure my animals had a larger intake of corn liquor, pork chops, and chewing tobacco than the white rats in the medical school, but at least they were human. This is what white people think of us to this very day. Um, They see us as their animals, their niggas, um, you know, and I mean, it's evident just in in the daily things you come across on the news, but this kind of brings it home as far as medical experimentation. And um, and even closer to that, to even echo that, there was a uh, brief area on 357 that says So in New Orleans, this is, I believe, by Bailey, uh, uh, this Bailey character uh, so in new orleans where it was cheaper to use niggas and cats because they were everywhere and cheap experimental animals there wasn't much working there the people we had been picking for this operation had sick really been at the bottom of the can nothing is going to help them shoot them is the only thing so they started to use them negroes patients in hospitals and so the same area little box was put on their paws with a button and they just went around pop 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 all the time continuous orgasms This is what they think of us. First, they tried experimentation on cats, and when they discovered the area of the brain that controlled the pleasure center, of course, they found that mammals tend to be similar as far as the certain aspects of the brain development. So they found the same thing in humans, these black people, and basically facilitated ruining their minds by putting these electrodes on their brain and then allowing them access to sexual pleasure. And I'm sure when you have your skull, split open, and electrodes in your brain, and you're probably suffering just from the pain of having your brain exposed, the only other thing you would seek is some sort of pleasure to alleviate the pain that you're suffering through. Just sick. And the last thing I wanted to talk about was, um, there's a brief section beneath that that says Bailey also tested LSD and the drug... Bulbacapne, which can cause catatonia and stupor on African-American prisoners at Louisiana State Penitentiary. According to one CIA memo, the agency wished to know whether Bulbacapne would produce aphasia or loss of speech, anesthesia, memory loss, or sabotaging of willpower in persons with a weak type of central nervous system. Decades later, some survivors sued the federal government and the CIA, which settled out of court and agreed to pay $750,000 to seven former mind control victims this again is the testing of the zombification of black people utilizing drugs and uh, especially to sabotage willpower to create a form of anesthesia and um the loss of speech so in other words keep you stupid and quiet basically catatonia like they say and um this is like the walking dead like this is crazy like the type of stuff that they're into and um lastly i just wanted to say i just saw the um the fourth installment of Hidden Colors, uh, the religion of white supremacy. I suggest every black person who was within earshot get to look at this. They talk about medical, uh, not medical apartheid itself, but germ warfare and medical experimentation and the information throughout that entire. Uh, documentary is mind-blowing. I was so saddened that Dr. Wilson did not live long enough to partake because it was so up her alley. It was stuff that she would have probably dropped all kind of nuclear explosions on the psyche if she had the opportunity to live long enough to contribute to. And I would just say, please get your hands on it. Look at it. It is incredible. Thank you for taking my call. i see
4: the caller at 5592. Did you have commentary? Yes.
1: Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Hello, I have um, three comments I would like to share. First, I want to commend Thomas for standing up to, uh, to the medical field and protecting other families and it's quite honorable in your part. And i uh, also want to make reference to the HIV and the gay plague that they talked about in the book. Uh, I'm sure homosexuality. sexuality, uh, a couple of semesters ago uh, at the university where I worked. And um, I have some information on that that may be useful um, to most of us. And what they're saying about um, HIV is saying that um, HIV and AIDS uh, were not recognized until the early 1980s when the infections first appeared in the United States. They have been present in humans since the 1900s. And perhaps earlier, recent discovery suggested the violence probably caused from chimpanzees and other non-human primates affected with the, let me just um, pronounce, uh, dominion, S-I-M-I-A-N, affected with the dominion form of HIV called SIV to humans between 1894 and 1924 and began to spread as cities developed in an area of Africa uh, now, uh, and can I something that is in condo. Now, they say also, SIV is harmless to non-human primate populations. In humans, it converts to HIV, which leads to the weakening and destruction of the immune system and eventually to AIDS. Um, okay, this, uh, the cause of this animal, to human culture, is ultimately related to human practices in some kind of Africa of hunting and butchering primates leading to um, extended blood products from uh, to humans and to tra- transfer of the virus. And let me just go in here now. This says the awareness of HIV and AIDS in the United States dates back to the early 1980s. On June 6, 1981, the Center Tele- for Disease Control released their first report that a few cases of rare form of this pneumonia or what we call PCC has been diagnosed among gay men in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco and uh, two other mysterious diseases that can be rare for the skin cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Let me just jump to the next page here. It says, in the early years after the discovery of AIDS in the United States, the illness and deaths were occurring primarily within the gay male community. On the street and among the population of general, the disease was regarded as a, quote, gay plague adding fuel to the already hot fire of the prejudice and discrimination against non heterosexual individuals. However, even to the professional health community, AIDS did indeed appear at first to be limited to gay men. Consequently, the first official medical destination for AIDS was GRID, G-R-I-D. that's the acronym for gray, Gay-related Immune Sufficient However, AIDS was discovered populations beyond gay male, between women, and between the drug users, and large groups of people in other countries, especially at that time. And talking about Haiti and Africa. Consequently, in 1982, Center for Disease Control officially changed the name of the disease to acquire new deficiency syndrome or "AIDS." So that's that's the story on on, on the AIDS situation. For it to shift, uh, apparently that, that that is true. Um, and also just uh, the gay play among white men is where uh, here in the United States they uh, discovered HIV. And I'm just going to add um, one, one more comment that I said it was a word that I couldn't think of to describe these deeps these, 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 up and in the south. I want to be more rational. And the word is sadistic. That's what I was looking for. They are very really savage people, white people. And it says a, a statistic personality disorder is characterized by a pattern of, of, uh, of cruelty, aggression, and demeaning behavior. specifically specific case is a deep-seated contempt for other people and an utter lack of empathy. Some states are uh, utilitarian. They leverage their explosive violence to establish a position of unchallenged dominance in a relationship. Um, like psychopaths, they rarely use physical force in the commission of crimes, rather their aggressiveness is embedded in interpersonal context, and it's expressed in social settings, such as the family and the workplace. Then it goes on to say that the uh, stated like to inflict pain because they find suffering both uh, uh, psychological uh, psychological amusing, they torture animals and people because to them the sights and sounds of creatures living in Agony, or hilarious, and pleasure. Pleasure or faded, both through great lips to hurt others. They lie, they committed crimes, they didn't make personal sacrifices merrily, um, and, uh, and to enjoy the bizarre moment of what someone else's misery. It says, this is an audience of self, circumstances, they describe to humiliate them. They make them feel, okay, uh, power plays on important to them, uh they are likely to treat people they can that they could trust to their care harshly. It's important that the child with do the prison patient for a spouse uh are all like disciplinary measures. And it just says that uh how advanced abuse by flax food they paralyze and intimidate even nearest uh dearest uh uh and, and so forth. So those are the three comments I wanna make over I congratulate you again. Rose and HIV and the other word I'm looking for with specific with psychopath psychopaths pale in, in, in comparison
4: to someone who is specific. Uh, thank you for uh, taking my call. For sure. Uh, are there other folks that we have not heard from who had commentary that they wanted to share? Anybody that we haven't heard from who had commentary or folks satisfied? I'll assume the other folks uh, are satisfied, at least for the time. Again, we are almost at the end, so I hope people are not thinking, oh, I'm just going to wait till we get ready to the end, and then I'll just get my hand up and I can make my comments <laughs> during the last minute or so. Um, Things that stood out, quick notes that I wanted to make sure I got in. The um, p- importance of uh, black journalists. When she was talking about the heart, uh, plant, uh, heart transplant, the artificial heart that Mr. Tool got, uh, that the mainstream coverage was generally positive. She said that the black journalists, uh, that they took a different stance, uh, asking whether uh, Mr. Tool was selected uh, be, for this exceedingly risky and untried surgery because he was black and by implication expendable outstanding job using logic, black journalists. Um, next thing I, I just pointed this out cause I think this was brought up before in our study session uh, in terms of white people doing things to trick you to make it seem like you consented. And that wasn't really the case. Uh, and I said, that I think it's important that frequent just in a system of white supremacy I'm in charge. I have more power. I don't need to do that if I want to. If I really want to do it, uh, I don't need to even lie or trick you to make it seem like you consented and maybe you didn't understand or we use words that you didn't grasp or you have some reading difficulties or we switch things around. Sometimes it's whatever. We, not, we don't even give the pretense of making an effort to get consent. We're just going to do what we want and then, yeah, we didn't get consent and what are you going to do about it? And I think she's given tons of illustrations of that, not just this week, uh, but throughout Uh, the text that we've been reading um, I thought it was great when she pointed out that the consent forms uh, that some of these other black people who where they got uh, this artificial heart that was dangerous and experimental they hadn't really tried it out yet uh, that the uh, consent form was kind of vague uh, and they didn't include that if you choose to withdraw from this experiment that you're going to die that it'll be too late and you know Tough noogies, if you didn't ask enough questions uh, during the phase, during your consultation about all this, that's on you. Too late, nothing can be done about it now. I think white people do this in general uh, in relation when they are coming to, quote, unquote, help you uh, and just about white people's conduct in general, uh, where she says the forms. where they are talking about these consent forms for these uh, artificial hearts and what have you. The forms tend to exaggerate benefits and to underplay risks, presenting an overly optimistic view regarding quality of life during and after the experiment. Such understatement is typical of how. The medical jargon helps to distort the portrayal of the likely quality of life. I just That is standard operating procedure uh, for whites using a lot of flowery rhetoric and euphemisms and just being very deceptive and skillful with words. I think we really need to have a much deeper comprehension of what we what we mean when we say forked tongue or that white people lie this is white people lying when they deliberately use words so that you are confused so that you don't have an accurate understanding that is lying. Not just, you know, if I owe you a hundred dollars and I say, Oh yeah, I owe you $50. Yes, that's lying. But I mean, a master deceiver, there are many layers to deception. And I think we've got a lot of that in the text as well. Um, and yeah, we got that about the consent. Um, I thought that was important, too, where they were talking about uh, having a proxy who could make medical decisions for you if you are uh, unconscious or have somehow been uh, in a state of being debilitated where you cannot speak for yourself. but. Black people are less likely to have uh, that proxy be able to stand in for them and make an informed decision. And they already know that uh, if you can just get black people isolated, which is easy to do, whether you get them incarcerated or you snatch them out of the womb so they're in some sort of foster situation or whatever. I mean, they have a myriad of ways to get us isolated, and then they can really go to work. And this is all the way back, if you want to go all the really take it all the way back to the half. It's never been told to the plantation that is one of the things that they have uh, easily the power to do. And that is breaking apart quote unquote black families and separating us. I uh, thought it was when she was talking about the experimental uh, blood, uh, pseudo blood derivative that they were making. Uh, that, of course we're going to go to Detroit, the Flint water crisis, <laughs> the fake blood in Detroit. Yes. Anything that we want to make out and try any experiments, where are the nigras? point us to the nigras and we will get cracking. Um, same thing. I think Thomas touched on them going to uh, the townships in South Africa for the exact same thing. Um, let's see. I think Roz already touched on the portion where uh, the poor white men turned up their nose. This is another one that's. I mean, it is it is absurd. It's inaccurate. It defies logic when they try to uh, insist that there is some sort of class analysis that accurately captures what's happening on the planet. Clearly that is not the case. Uh, you, I do not think you're going to be able to as easily compile a book of medical apartheid against poor white people. Uh, yes, I'm very aware poor whites have been sterilized and some of these prison experiments have went after poor white people, but clearly the most egregious, the most barbaric, uh, if you want to even call them experiments, uh, terroristic acts under the guise of medicine have been reserved for black people. That's a point that she's made repeatedly throughout this book. Even uh, when they have done some of these tests and included whites, a highly disproportionate amount of them have been on black people. Uh, and in this case, poor white people knew like, there's no way I'm going to be swallowing some tubes and allowing you to have some device in my brain and all that, like, whatever. I am white. I will, you know, be able to get my nickels uh, however I come by them. Uh, and I would strongly suspect that even if you are a black person and you have a few coins, that is not going to save you uh, from a lot of these procedures where they just take advantage of black people. Um, let's see, moving forward. Yeah, the way that they were uh, talked about in the, I think Ross already touched on that extremely important. Uh, Dr. Bailey, when he's. Talking about his niggers and you know they got pork chops and everything else. Of course, that's that's how they thought of us then. That's how they think of us now. That's what it means to be white. Uh, it, in my view, it's impossible to have any other view uh, of niggers worldwide. I think it would just be better if they would just make that plain. That way, we would be less confused uh, about what is happening on the planet. Um, what I did think was really important: uh, the work with uh, Mr. Bailey. Uh, Dr. Heath, Mr. Bailey, the work that they were doing at Angola, Louisiana State Penitentiary. I think that came up before in the book. I said that was one of the most, uh, in my opinion, that, along with the statement about the control of black black reproduction, uh, we want you to have a whole lot of little black babies. we're on the plantation, now we have more workers, and we can sell them off, rape them, whatever we want to do, or we don't want you to have too many black babies because we don't want a whole lot of dark folks around here. So we'll you know, sterilize you or whatever we need to do to make sure that you are not uh, procreating too much. Uh, the control, white control of black reproduction, that is 1A, 1B. You can move it around either way you like, but those are the two most important points in the book for me. And that section where they were talking about the CIA exclusively, they didn't say poor white people, they didn't say gay people, transgender people, anybody else, they said exclusively. Black people happen to be inmates at Angola in Louisiana. We're experimenting on them for ways to reduce their willpower, make them more docile, make them so that they cannot speak. Pause for Muhammad Ali. I think that is astronomically important uh, in talking about the maintenance of a global empire of white terrorism. Anything that we can do that will make Negros easier to control, uh, if we can find out new medications, things that we can dump in the water, flint things we put in the food whatever it is uh, and I think even the next chapter that we're going to read is American bioterrorism targets blacks that's the last chapter in the book that we'll hit next Friday Uh, but I thought that was equally important uh, one of the most important things in the book just this is not white privilege what we're talking about this is organized terrorism warfare in all areas of people activity on into eternity this is we have no intention of stopping we're looking for ways to make sure that this is permanently uh, in place if that means severing a Negro child's brain at two, then that's what it means. Oh, well, we're gangsters about scientific gangsters and terrorists about this. Sadists, all of the terms would apply appropriately. Um, let's see. Black people in New Orleans been catching it for a long time. Um, that they tested LSD. Some of this was in John Patash, uh, the black uh, FBI's war against against Tupac Shakur and black leaders, these drug tests, LSD and cannabis and methamphetamine or whatever else they concoct uh, in their labs to test uh, on negros. I thought that was extremely uh, important, should not be taken lightly. That's the sort of thing we should keep in mind when they get real (laughs) excited about saying we need to legalize all drugs, cannabis, and anything else that they've got in their warehouses. Um, And... Uh, I did not want all that to within everything that was being discussed in terms of what uh, this race soldier uh, Bailey did within all of that and his testing and calling black people negros and everything else, animals, comparing them to cats. uh, It seemed like the cats had more value. Cat lives matter, not black lives. Uh, that he sexually abused some of these patients. Not that I'm uh, surprised, but this is the sort of thing that we should keep in mind Anytime the white guest that I've asked on the program is the rape of black people. Is that a fundamental central aspect of white culture, white supremacy culture, and they hem and haw and, well, I don't know, well, maybe, I mean, Daniel Hosling yeah, Thomas, G., yeah, I mean, yeah, but I don't, this is what I mean. This is real, real, real prevalent. Uh, I mean, you just have to take a a scant look and it's just going to be all over the place. White people doing some sort of uh, sexual deviance uh, against black people, black males, black females, black children. And that's even been a prominent theme in this book. She's talked about that all the way back to uh, formal plantation days. But I will stop there. I will assume everybody's good because I did ask multiple times and we had silence. I will assume folks uh, are good for the week. Uh, next week, this is the last chapter technically in the book. There's an epilogue that is uh, kind of chunky, so we will not complete it next week. But next week is chapter 15. Uh, we have two and we are done. Uh, the next book that we're going to do is Blood Brothers, which is on Muhammad Ali, Minister Malcolm X. Their uh, friendship uh, deteriorated ultimately. but. Uh, how they came to know one another, the history about their relationship and all of that. Uh, that book was actually published before uh, Mr. Ali transitioned uh, just a few weeks ago. But that'll be the next book that we will start in two weeks. Wait a minute. Three weeks. Sorry. three weeks. We have two weeks left of this book and then three weeks we will be starting the new book on uh, Minister Malcolm Muhammad Ali, Blood Brothers. But two more left in this one. Chapter 15 is where we'll start next week. If folks have thoughts, if you have been reading along, this is a book I think uh, because Henrietta Lacks did come up and we read that too. Like I said, this has been a whole referendum on what we've been doing on the cows for all these years. Henrietta Lacks, we read uh, Rebecca Skloot's book which did not exist at the time that this book was published. I think Rebecca Skloot's uh, book came out in 2010 if memory serves. Uh, But whenever it was published, it was after this book came out. So that didn't even exist uh, when she wrote this. But uh, certainly that would be another great uh, addition to what this book is all about to go back and uh, hear about what she talks about with uh, the rape of Henrietta Lex, Henrietta Lacks genetic material. I think that was what her brother uh, called it appropriately. Uh, At any rate, if you have thoughts, uh, feedback you would like to give, feel free to drop an email. My suggestion, if you need an assignment it's summertime, you're looking for something to do. I would even say, I think if you have offspring and they are 16 or over, Uh, You know your child. Uh, I know some of us, you know, it takes us a little longer uh, in terms of getting our reading skills where they were. I was not a big reader. I didn't enjoy reading. It was just not my thing when I was 16. But uh, if you have a 16 year old child, you know your child that they're pretty strong in reading. I think this is a book that they can read uh, for summertime. If you're looking for material that your child can read, if they're 16 or up, they can read this book. Uh, Get a dictionary. You want to challenge your brain anyway. Uh, Make sure you're using your brain computer over these summer months and not just sitting around uh, watching television, playing video games, goofing around or what have you. They should read this book. Uh, Even if you uh, are not a younger victim of racism, write a book report. If you've been following along uh, on this book session if you've been paying attention, you've been calling in, you've been even if you haven't called in, if you've been listening, write a book report. You can put a review on Amazon that might encourage other people, other black people in particular, uh, to read this book. Uh, And I just I think that would be really important. It might even help uh, generate more attention to get more people to read, even though I think I get the impression that this book is very popular. But definitely this is a book that deserves uh, a review. That's one that I uh, myself uh, will be writing to make sure I include those two points that I already mentioned. Uh, But write a review. I think that would be uh, the least we could do if this book has some value and people have said that they have enjoyed it or it's uh, just been a wealth of information. Write a review, post it online. You can post it at Amazon.com or other sites. There are a wealth of sites online that are talking about this book where you can post it and share with other people. I think that would be a great task. Certainly, if you have children, as I said, if they are 16 or up, I think they could read this book. There you go. Read the book. You can take, you know, a month, two months, finish it by August or what have you, and then... Write like a one page, uh, one and a half page summary, or you can do a word count summary of what you learned in the book. I think that would be great, a uh, great way to keep them active, keep them thinking, and keep them learning, and maybe even encourage some young black people. Wow, we are being totally raped in the healthcare field. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to do something uh, in the medical industry so that I can help black people. That would be outstanding. That would be my counter racist suggestion for the week. With that, we'll be here tomorrow compensatory call-in, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I think it would even tie in with all the talk about uh, access to abortion that's been talked about this week in the Supreme Court case that was early in the week. I think that would relate to this as well. We can talk about that tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, compensatory call-in uh, on Sunday. will be here as well. Same broadcast time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, Steve Jimenez, he wrote the book, uh, a book of matt that's what it's called uh about matthew shepherd uh the white male uh he is gay was gay uh he was killed in wyoming in 1998 uh it was alleged to be a hate crime uh mr jimenez and his book presents a wealth of information uh that mr shepherd uh used drugs he sold drugs uh, Participated. Uh, Seems like he might have been strong. Lots of evidence to suggest that he was a member of a drug cartel uh, in the Wyoming, Colorado area, trafficking drugs, using drugs, distributing drugs, uh, and that this might have been a drug crime, not a hate crime. Uh, Just for the record, no one was ever convicted for a hate crime in this case. They did convict two people for uh, the killing, and they got life sentences there in jail now, Uh, but no one was ever convicted or charged for a hate crime and even the prosecutor in the case said that he didn't really see any evidence of a hate crime that this uh, Matthew Shepard was killed because he was gay. But that is not uh, the way that this uh, this murder uh, is generally talked about. Uh, it's generally talked about it is connected directly with racism, white supremacy, and people saying that this is the Emmett Till of our generation. And they have this right alongside James Byrd Jr., which I feel is just a massive act of white supremacy. And I'm looking forward to talking about it Monday within the context, Sunday, excuse me, Sunday within the context of the shooting in Florida. Uh, if you have questions, problems, Gripes, guest suggestions. You can't find something in the archive. Feel free to drop an email until justice@gmail.com until justice at gmail.com. Thank you, kindly, for all the folks who have participated. This has been grand uh, reading this text with you all. Uh, we'll be back in about 48 hours again. I know it's a holiday weekend for folks in the states, and people are looking forward to going out acting a fool. Remain codified if you are going to consume any alcohol or any other uh, substances. uh, I would recommend you do not want to be around whites and you at least want to codify that experience. I would say get to one spot so that you can be there and not have to worry about having to uh, get in a vehicle and potentially be stopped by uh, race soldiers or putting yourself in an unnecessary problematic uh, predicament. Uh, Go ahead and get to one spot. Stay there until you can leave the next day when you are sober. You know there are going to be a lot of sobriety checkpoints. Uh, I, I would say probably until at least Tuesday. Keep that in mind as you're out and about. You do not want to be under the influence if you are in the vehicle. And that for this weekend, for sure. Driver, passenger, even if you are a pedestrian, you are asking for trouble. It's been my experience that they disproportionately put those checkpoints in areas with a high concentration of black people. So certainly be codified all the way through uh, at least until Tuesday. Uh, You want to make outstanding decisions uh, this weekend, anytime, really, but certainly this weekend, next five days or so. Uh, Don't do anything that's going to cause you any unnecessary problems. I'm sure a whole lot of folks are going to get locked up over the next 72, 96 hours. Make sure that it is not you. Uh, With that, creator, we ask that you help us Thanks all for tuning in.
6: Nigga, you so brainwashed.
3: I'm a victim, brother. You're
6: a victim.
2: I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned.
0: (laughs)
1: 18 plus.